Let's get started. Um, welcome, everybody. It's a small crowd so far, much smaller than normal. I wonder where everybody is. Um, but let's get started with this. It is a special issue, a crossover issue of um, my semi-regular spaces, which are always uh, usually interesting and have great interaction with uh, listeners who always ask interesting and penetrating questions. And the Multipolarity Podcast, I suppose this is going to be, in the words of our producer, a gonzo edition of the podcast. We are going to talk about the unfolding rivalry between the United States and China. We will look, first of all, at the um, back and forth over microchips, which has taken another development this week, and some of the implications of that, what we can tell from uh, about the U.S. Um, the U.S.'s diplomatic power uh, within that area and uh, within the Southeast Asian area, uh, as well as what it says about the uh, broader uh, ongoing Cold War 2.0. Um, and I hope we'll also talk about Turkey. Uh, Turkey has uh, important elections, presidential elections even. Um, there have been a lot of very interesting developments there. And of course, Turkey is an interesting state in itself. It's something of a keystone state when it comes to global affairs. I think it's got power or importance at least that far outstrips its uh, size uh, as a country, uh, both in terms of population and economics. So let's get started. I'm with Philip Pilkington tonight, who is my regular, well, he's my co-host on uh, the Multipolarity podcast, which you can listen to on YouTube and all good podcast uh, applications. Uh, Philip is an economist and financial analyst. He writes for uh, Unheard, uh, The Critic, American Conservative, uh, Compact Magazine, and elsewhere. And he was recently one of the uh, keynote speakers at the National Conservative uh, Conference in London, which went off with great hoopla and uh, media coverage. Uh, Philip, welcome. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? Good to be on Spaces for a change rather than on the pod. Yeah, we're doing it live. It's a kind of live performance. So it's, uh, so it's exciting. We, we don't have Gavin Haynes, our producer, to uh, bail us out of our ums and ahs and our mistakes and errors and inability to get our tongues around the names of foreign leaders. So we'll have to be on our best behavior. Um, uh, Philip, sorry? I was going to say, I think people are going to figure out that we actually don't play our own instruments. And we yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, well, as long as, long as they don't come to the conclusion that we're miming the uh, words as well, uh, we should be okay, I think. <laughs> um, okay, Philip, let's start with um, 
the chip war, because obviously people are well aware now that um, the US and China are well into Cold War 2.0, I think it's fair to say. Um, it takes a very different format, though, from the first Cold War, because, of course, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, because of its um, Marxist-Leninist economic system, uh, was entirely iso- or almost entirely isolated from the rest of the world. It traded mainly with the uh, Soviet bloc and only in a very limited sense um, the rest of the world, whereas this time uh, the US and China have huge volumes of trade crossing the Pacific between themselves and each other and also between uh, China and U.S. allies and uh, U.S. allies and Chinese allies, that China's very much interlinked with the global economy. The other point, of course, is that the Soviet Union was so always somewhat a backward economy. It was way behind the U.S. Uh, technologically, and um, it was something that, uh, you know, a tech rivalry was something that the U.S. really didn't have to think about, whereas that's not the case with China. China has caught up technologically at an incredible pace to the US. Um, some I've seen recent studies, I can't remember what the study was, but in a great many areas of technology like um, like 5G and other telecommunications, like computing, like, um, like robotics, uh, satellites, you know, the Chinese are well up there with the US in terms of uh, leadership position. The latest... Round in this, just to give people some background, um, the U.S. decided essentially that it was going to try to hobble China's ability to compete in high-tech industries. And to that end, it banned the export of uh, certain high-end chips from the uh, Chinese uh, fabrication plant, uh, sorry, the Taiwanese fabrication plants to China. And it also then got buy-in from the Dutch, who make a lot of the extremely expensive, extremely um, difficult to produce uh, lithographic machines, which are crucial in making such chips in an effort to stop the Chinese just replacing those chips with its own versions. Now, it made the argument that this was for uh, strategic defense purposes, to prevent the Chinese using them in its military. I think that was a very thin excuse, personally, because I'm not sure these very high-end chips are indeed used in the military. Uh, But that was the excuse it gave. Now, China this week has uh, struck back by completing its um, uh, security review into the U.S. chip fabricator Micron, which is a huge, you know, everyone knows about Intel in the US, but Micron is another huge chip manufacturer. And it has found that uh, Micron indeed does not pass security thresholds, and therefore it has banned Micron from uh, Chinese companies from buying from Micron uh, in certain areas. So do you want to run through that uh, story and uh, maybe go into some of the implications of it? Yeah, I think you've summarized it pretty well. Um, Let's see. I mean, we could add to it that Micron gets about 16% of its revenues from China and Hong Kong, Uh, Hong Kong being pretty much part of China these days. Um, I suppose you can also background it slightly by saying that the U.S. chip industry uh, ain't what it used to be, really. 
Um, there's a great uh, paper uh, essay in American Affairs called Where the Chips Fell by my friend Julius Krein uh, on on the industry and on the CHIPS Act that was tacked onto uh, Joe Biden's Green New Deal. Oh, sorry, I mean Inflation Reduction Act that was recently passed. Um, it, the U.S. tech industry, the U.S. chip industry, just isn't in a great place. It's not. It's not a world leader anymore. As you say, they had to get buy-in from Taiwan and from the Netherlands um, and from Germany too um, to do these kind of high-end chip sanctions properly, which uh, you know kind of gives the game away that the best chips aren't being made in America these days. Um, so it's a little bit of a sluggish industry anyway. Um, it's kind of fallen behind a bit. Um, David P. Goldman, uh, who I think we both like on Twitter, has pointed out many times before that, that, you know, going in and dumping a bunch of money into the chips and into the semiconductors industry through the Chips Act, and then going and engaging in a trade war where 16% of the revenue of Micron dries up is, you know, kind of a first it giveth, then it taketh away kind of approach to the problem. That is, it's a terrible approach to the problem that makes absolutely no sense. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a disaster all around. But I, I think the big, I mean, look, we, we kind of knew this would happen, I think. But the U.S. Um, kind of came out with some sort of a response. Uh, the response in itself is kind of kind of stupid, and it kind of shows, um, shows what a mess this is. They basically said, okay, well, if China aren't going to buy them from Micron, where are they going to buy these chips? And uh, it turns out they'll probably be buying them from from South Korea. And so the Americans turned around to the South Koreans uh, a few weeks ago and said, please, please, please don't sell them the chips that they're not buying from us. And South Korea said, no, (laughs) we're not doing that. Um, Clearly signaling that although American allies may be willing to be convinced to restrict um, some very high-end technology, they are not willing to go all in on a tit-for-tat trade war that will only escalate as it moves on. So so I think I wrote a piece for Unheard this week, and I said, you know, that shows very, very clear limits to American capacity to isolate China. I mean, just from a logical point of view, the, this far and no further is clearly we might help you out with some, you know, high-end technology bans, although I'd say even those are difficult to get done. I know that the Europeans were not enthusiastic about doing it and pushed back before they agreed. But the moment that you get us caught in your trade doom loop where we're going to ban China, they're going to ban us, we're going to ban them again, they're going to ban us again, we know that's going to destroy our industries. We know it's going to destroy our economies, and we're not doing it, which you'd wonder why America has not those questions too. Micron's about to lose 16% of its revenue, and as David Goldman points out, that is going to hobble capex development and hobble the whole industry even further and it's already at a disadvantage of course in addition to all this the chinese are are plowing ahead with trying to build their own semiconductor industry and they will eventually there is absolutely no reason to think that the chinese won't eventually build this and in fact um i think it was the nvidia chief said two days ago i want to say i think i tweeted about it he said exactly this. He said, this is self-defeating and um, China are going to end up building this stuff because the Chinese are pretty good at doing that. 
Uh, they do it with a lot of stuff. I mean, they they're leaders in like five G and stuff these days. <laughs> like we're not dealing with the with the pound shop slash dollar store toy economy of nineteen ninety six here. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of an overview. We can we can kind of talk about where it's headed a little bit more. Um, you know, it's 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 crashing at the same time as America's spy balloon oriented uh diplomatic i put in scare quotes efforts are crashing as well so i i I think we're running into the kind of limits of the uh of the trade war and it's it's surrounding uh quote-unquote diplomacy hostile stance maximum aggression uh captain america diplomacy so that's 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 how it feels to me yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about losing that revenue, uh, as some of our listeners might know, people from Britain, uh, the Conservative government has recently released its uh, much-delayed uh, semiconductor strategy. And as that was being written and as it was uh, approaching the publication date, I did a bit of research and reading uh, about that industry and one of the things that struck me is just how capital intensive it is. You know, like these, the companies who are engaged in this field, uh, companies like Intel and also, um, T- uh, is it TMSC? I, I never get the letters the right way so around. TSMC, I think. TSMC, right. The Taiwanese, the, 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 the main Taiwanese, uh, fab, which produces a lot of the, the super high end chips. These guys have to invest billions and billions of dollars into this industry. And in very high capex industries, if you suddenly wipe out, you know, 15, 20% of your, uh, revenue as a company, that really constrains the amount of capex that you can actually do. So I think the, the that revenue loss is going to be particularly hard felt in this industry simply because it is so capital intensive. I think the other point that's worth noting is that the U.S. has just bought a great many, I, th- I think half a million, 105-millimeter uh, uh, artillery shells from South Korea. Now, South Korea have pretty strict laws about the export of such um, of such weapons or, or munitions, I should perhaps say. And uh, Washington actually had to put huge amounts of diplomatic pressure on Seoul to find a workaround to these laws to be able to get these half million shells out of Seoul and pass them on to Ukraine. Now, they managed to do that, but not before there was something of a diplomatic scandal, because it it, it turned out that the US was snooping on um, South Korean politicians to the extent that they were actually getting a blow-by-blow account of deliberations in Seoul about how to move forward with this, the export of these weapons. And the president actually took a hit in the opinion polls shortly after these revelations uh, were outed in the media. And the major factor in this was... Uh, diplomatic uh, affairs and uh, the country's foreign policy. So it was clear that U.S. pressure and U.S. behavior with regard to um, providing Ukraine with weaponry had affected South Korean domestic politics. And I wonder whether Samsung's decision to refuse 
US overtures to stop selling to China the chips that China would have bought from Micron before it banned them was because the US had kind of burnt burnt its matches, so to speak, uh, with regard to the you, you know the diplomatic pressure it had put on with Ukraine. And I think there might be a bit of a Robin Peter to pay Paul situation here where you know the US is essentially fighting a, a, a kind of a two-front proxy war. And you know, it can't do, it's one of the classic things where if you try to be strong everywhere, you end up being strong nowhere. And it seems to me that the US by, you know, having these two uh, proxy wars, one a kind of trade war and one a hot proxy war, um, it's, you know, it's really struggling to do both at the same time. So those are two things that I've picked up on this. The other point you mentioned, NVIDIA. What's really interesting is that the NVIDIA CEO has come out with something of a publicity campaign, I guess, in the wake of China's Micron decision, in case the US decides to take it another cycle in the trade doom loop, so to speak, by retaliating for Micron uh, with another range of sanctions. And obviously, NVIDIA is one of uh, the real success stories of U.S. industry over the last kind of 15 or 20 years. And what's particularly interesting about NVIDIA, uh, younger people probably know NVIDIA for making the best graphics cards that drive uh, gaming computers. You know, these things can process uh, these uh, GPUs are specifically there to, 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 to process graphics. But NVIDIA some years ago realized that their chips could be used for the kind of uh, high... Um, uh, high operations needed to run uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning um, programs and made a big bet on this. So what's interesting is if the U.S. has indeed um, uh, kind of backed off and NVIDIA is still going to be able, uh, you know, open to the uh, open to China, uh, NVIDIA is kind of crucial for the development of AI and machine learning and big data. And it's that exact area that the U.S. wants to kind of hobble China so the U.S. can maintain some kind of leadership. So I'm not sure that this, you know, obviously you talked about the big picture and, you know, how it, it doesn't make sense from a macroeconomic point of view. But from my perspective, I'm not even sure it's working out tactically for the U.S. either. It, it, it's not stopped uh, the prime exporter of uh, AI, machine learning, big data, um, uh, use chips to China. Um, Micron has lost out on revenue, and it's a, as I say, a very capital capital intensive industry. And it's shown diplomatically, it doesn't have the leverage necessary uh, to run a trade war like this, because in a globalized economy, as we've seen with Russia. You stop selling to a country, that country can find those goods elsewhere, either from another country that produces them or from the sanctioning country, but through third parties. And the only way really to make this work is by getting the whole world or much of the world on board. Now, that might be easier with chips because it's such a kind of globalized um, uh, industry that only a few kind of centers, you know, the, the, the Netherlands for the lithographic machines, um, uh, Taiwan and to a lesser extent US for the actual fabrication, um, qu quite a few different places, including Britain actually for the, for the design of the chips. Uh, but because there's so few kind of nodes within the supply chain, in theory, it should be one of the easier industries to isolate a country from. 
and yet even here they failed because the the South Koreans, perhaps the U.S.'s most stalwart ally in the theater of Southeast Asia or the Western Pacific, has basically said no. So I'm not even sure that they're winning tactically on this battle, uh, let alone in a big picture, uh, from a big picture perspective. Right. I think that kind of... um brings us back to the diplomatic uh, hijinks over the past week. So um, Joe Biden was at um, G7 last weekend and said uh, that the row over the quote-unquote silly balloon uh, needed to be kind of put to bed and the diplomatic relations were going to thaw soon. Now, there's been some debate about whether that's a Bidenism, whether he's kind of talking uh, off-piste, as it were, um, or if that's kind of like, you know, you're sent out there to say, okay, sorry, guys, that was all a bit stupid. Um, but either way, it did have a vibe of it, about it of kind of, um, you know, I think the Americans know that, that their allies and people around the world are kind of getting a bit sick of this uh, China thing. <laughs> that, you know, it's not working very well. It's creating a lot of uncertainty. The worse it gets, you know, the worse it is for everybody. Um, the fact that they're not talking, um, and it's, I think, pretty clear. I think Biden, even by saying that the, the silly balloon line, is implicitly admitting that the Americans uh, uh, poisoned this relationship. Um, so, you know, he's a kind of, you know, saying sorry in a sense. I mean, not, not directly, obviously, but he's saying give us a chance here. We'll get the door open soon. Um, they may. They may. I think they've really annoyed the Chinese with this stuff, but you know, I think at some point people will have to start talking again. The other, the other interesting um, thing from a diplomatic point of view this week is that um, I think it was in the Financial Times today, maybe it was yesterday, but Jamie Dimon and the Wall Street Boys are over in China at the moment, and um, uh, now this is only a few year uh, years after Jamie Dimon. Um, made a quip that J.P. Morgan would outlast the Chinese Communist Party, um, which is uh, brave of him to say. Um, I wonder, can you take a position on that with J.P. Morgan? I'd be really interested. Are there like, is there like a, a put and call option kind of thing that you could do with that? But um, he said that, and obviously it, it didn't go down well. But they're over there trying to kind of renormalize business. I, I think that their basic line over there is that you know the relationship will probably go up and down over the next few years which is probably a reasonable reasonable assumption but the the very fact that they're there um speaks volumes i mean i know people will say oh wall street controls the democrats and the republicans and all that but my feeling is if the state department really really didn't want jp morgan and and the wall street gang to go over to china they could probably have a word with them so um, so, you know, I, I think it's safe to assume that, that, you know, maybe that was even viewed as positively in DC. Like we've kind of, you know, mucked things up on the diplomatic, uh, angle, maybe having, having the wall street guys go over there and stir up a bit of goodwill might not be a terrible thing. Um, I mean, apart from that, I think wall street definitely want to get involved in China. Um, when I was working in finance, it was, there was a bit of a rush for it. Everybody was kind of kind of looking to get in. Um, now it's a mixed bag. I mean, other people would say, you know, you know, if you go over there, I mean, the Chinese will just kind of, you know, steal your tactics. <laughs> so you'll be banking or whatever, and they'll just copy you. And eventually you won't, uh, 
you won't have a position in the company. And there's probably some truth to that, to be honest. But I think they definitely want kind of want a whack of it over there. So they're there. I mean, the whole thing just feels like it's kind of, it's kind of, I'm, I don't want to say it's reached an end point and then it gets ratcheted up again, but there really doesn't seem to be much life in this cor- corpse. I, I, it's, it, the failures have been so obvious, fairly spectacular. It, it looked at it, you know, it, it's happening in view of everybody. And it's really not good for the U.S. to continue, you know, these kind of disasters. And, of course, they must be they must be cognizant of the fact that no predictions on the Multipolarity podcast. But if the Ukraine war doesn't go so well in the next, I don't know, six to 18 months, is that a reasonable timeline? That you don't want that stacked on top of more kind of bad trade war policy that hasn't gone anywhere with china so i really think it's i really think this could be the beginning of dc packing it in the the other thing is to remember that a lot of the really aggressive china stuff came out of the war in ukraine you know it felt like people were sitting around in dc saying we have to look strong otherwise what happened in uh, eastern europe will happen in the south china sea and um you know i think that kind of you know you remember at the beginning of the war when people like actually thought putin was going to invade like poland or germany or something like people actually thought that so there was a kind of a, a hysteria at the time and that hysteria is definitely come down like the temperatures come down in that regard so i think that could really help um cool things off and i i think you know watching a few failures seeing that you know maybe the war in ukraine won't go so well um maybe it's time to kind of you know put the toys away on this one one of the things i found astonishing about the way that the uh, that washington and the Washington kind of foreign policy set have gone about this is that they've ratcheted up tensions. You know, you had Nancy Pelosi visiting uh, Taiwan. Uh, you've had a range of um, sanctions, which have pretty much been the U.S. saying, we are not going to allow you to uh, grow as an economy beyond X level of development. I mean, that's the unsaid points with regard to the chip ban, for example. It's like, look, you've got this plan to dominate all of these 21st century industries, and we're just not going to let you do that. We're not going to compete with you, but what we'll do is we'll just try to use our diplomatic power to cut that off. That was pretty unpleasant. You had all of this hysteria. I remember on the Multipolarity podcast, we uh, did an episode where we covered the kind of balloon, the great balloon scare, and um, the two of us had to stifle giggles uh, quite a few times uh, within that podcast because of just how preposterous the hysteria was, really. I mean, it was like Sputnik, but um, the, the, the kind of first as a tragedy, then as a farce, right? Um, so all of these things have happened at precisely the moment that Washington's weakest it's fighting a genuine proxy war against Russia. And in fact, I've read several fairly learned articles that suggest it would be quite difficult for the US to argue legally that it wasn't a co-belligerent given the degree of support it's giving Ukraine. Now, no matter what anybody tells me, this has had consequences in terms of uh, U.S. military readiness. Um, the um, CSIS, a think tank 
did a study about the um, armaments that the U.S. has sent to uh, Ukraine. And these, even at surge levels, so not at current manufacturing rates, but at the planned surge rates to increase manufacturing drastically, it's going to take between two and seven years, depending on the weapons category, whether it's, you know, artillery shells, artillery tubes, um, uh, multiple launch rocket systems, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to take between two and seven years to bring U.S. stockpiles back to where they were pre-war. Not all of these weapon systems are going to be required by Taiwan, and certainly few of them would be required by the U.S. to defend Taiwan. But there is definitely a crossover there. And in fact, Taiwan has a $19 billion uh, backlog in orders that it's made to the U.S. So the U.S. has been ratcheting up this tension through a series of means, both um, symbolic diplomatic acts, um, hard uh, trade acts, and uh, in addition to that, um, a, a range of quite uh, serious and punitive uh, diplomatic actions around the world. And it's ratcheted up these tensions at exactly the moment that it's suddenly, but probably temporarily, um, weakened because of what's happening on Europe's eastern approaches. And I found that whole idea quite shocking that it would do that. Surely... This would be the time when you would be trying to reassure China, try to calm things down on one front while you dealt with something on another. But, oh, no, not in Washington. And I think if you actually look at Washington's plans, and I would put plans in inverted commas if I was writing this down, but if you look at them, they don't seem to have been well thought through at all. They don't seem to have been well considered. This isn't a, a holistic plan that's really um, looked to consult American business and industry, uh, looked at U.S. relative strengths and weaknesses, looked at China's particular weaknesses, uh, looked at the potential consequences, and through this whole process, put together a, a you know highly developed and well considered plan. It seems to have been quite. Um, Quite haphazard. It's, it's be actually been quite bush league, if I'm being uh, perfectly frank. It's it's been very amateuristic, and I think Biden's words this week, where he says, "I think you know, Chinese American relationships will certainly start to improve recently." Well, based on what you you know, you've basically slapped them with a whole bunch of sanctions. Um, you, you've had you've lost. Uh, WTO decisions, and instead of trying to rectify that or, by, or abiding by the rules, what you've done is you've basically told the WTO, no, you're going to ignore those, and you've blocked the appointments uh, to certain WTO committees to prevent any punishment taking place. You have done things that you know will infuriate China diplomatically. You've tried to strong arm a, a whole range of allies, uh, and instead of trying to find some way to back out of that, and provide the foundation of improved relations. You just said, okay, we think we'll stop now and improve relations. This, to me, doesn't seem like serious diplomacy at all. This is um, this is not what I'd call... I mean, you know, Kissinger recently, it's his 100th birthday, and he seems to be uh, on something of a, a valedictory uh, PR campaign. But from the, the, the sound bites I've read and the kind of full articles that I've read, he is not impressed at all with the way Washington's gone about this. And 
you know, Kissinger certainly when he was national security advisor and then secretary of state in the Nixon administrations, um, he was pretty damn hard nosed. There was, you know, there was no softly, softly with uh, Henry Kissinger. There was subtlety. There was balance. There was an understanding of limits. But he wasn't a um, he, he he wasn't a sandal wearing hippie by any stretch of the imagination, and he has been ex- extremely critical about the way the U.S. has gone about this, and I understand that even from my um, uh, lowly level compared to uh, Professor Kissinger. It seems to me uh, very much that it's been a real amateuristic effort from Washington, both strategically and tactically and operationally. I think the problem is the sandal-wearing hippies have gone mad. It's, it's, it looks like it's kind of the, the bobos, you know? The yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's all those guys who were kind of uh, singing uh, Lesbian Seagull outside uh, uh, Pershing to missile uh, sites in Germany in the 70s and 80s, and they've become uh, warmongering uh, lunatics, uh, certainly in Europe, uh, and I guess uh, to a certain degree in the U.S. as well. Yeah, it's like the people who were like, you know, Henry Kissinger is a genocidal maniac for what he did in Cambodia. And now they're like, war on every front. <laughs> Russia and China, take them all on. So I don't know. I guess that's um, I guess that's the uh, we're a peak uh, baby boomer, I think would be fair to say. But um, so what what uh, what else are we what else are we discussing? Um, I think that's enough on well, I thought. Yeah, I think that should. I think that's enough. We've kind of hammered the the Americans. Well, I mean, on another front that America's kind of fighting at the minute, I thought we would look at um, Turkey because they have presidential elections coming up. It is the second round of voting um, in Turkey. If one candidate for president does not cross the fifty percent of the votes threshold then it goes to a second round with just the two a little bit like the french election now um uh, president erdogan uh, let's let's have a little bit of background to this so uh, over the last kind of five or six years certainly president erdogan has pursued what i think it's fair to call uh, unorthodox economic policies um they have led to uh, very high inflation. I think it's still over 50% now, but at one stage it was perhaps in triple digits, I believe. Um, the value of the Turkish lira, the currency in Turkey, has uh, plunged. It, it was until this year one of the worst performing currencies in the world over the last three or four years. And that's created a large amount of economic problems. However, what's been happening over the last yeah, 18 months or so, is that Turkey has been cashing in some of its uh, natural geopolitical chips. Turkey is a country because of its geopolitical location, um, points, in a, uh, points in a lot of directions, and therefore has quite a few geopolitical chips to cash in. Erdogan has seeked rapprochement with Assad. Um, they were at each other's throats for quite a while during the Turkish uh, civil war. Uh, but he's slowly moving towards uh, rapprochement um, with um, uh, Syria. Uh, hand in glove with that, of course, comes with uh, a similar process with Iran. Uh, these are uh, talks that have been brokered and some have even taken place uh, in Moscow. And with the Russians as well, Turkey has used 
um, events in Ukraine to its advantage, uh, securing preferential uh, gas deals uh, with uh, Russia. Uh, it's also become a key uh, gas pipeline transit route from Russia into the rich uh, market of Europe for natural gas. Uh, in addition to that, it's uh, also secured uh, Russian cash. Russia still has to put reserves somewhere now that it can't put them in the US and Europe. And Turkey's been one of the locations for that. Um, it's also used um, its membership of NATO. So now we're going to kind of, we've pointed south, we've pointed east, now we're going to point west. It's also used its position in NATO um, to use uh, Swedish and Finnish uh, accession as leverage to get things it would like out of Europe and the United States. So uh, Turkey started cashing in some of its geopolitical chips. Washington does not like this at all. So in the presidential elections, it followed something of the uh, modus operandi that it followed in uh, Hungary, where um, in the Hungarian elections, all of the opposition parties essentially grouped together to find a unified candidate to go against um, uh, uh, Viktor Orban. Um, and Orban thrashed them <laughs> all. It failed miserably. But they're trying the same thing in um, Turkey as well. So they've all grouped around... Um, uh, the uh, unified opposition candidate, and apologies if I'm going to absolutely murder the pronunciation of this, but it's not easy. It's uh, Kilk Daroglu is the, uh, Kemal Kilk Daroglu is the, the name of um, Mr. Erdogan's opponent. Erdogan was way behind in the polls. As I said, there's been significant economic strife in Turkey for quite a long time now. In addition to that, you had an awful earthquake, a great tragedy for the country, which exposed um, some corruption, I believe, within the real estate industry because uh, some of the buildings weren't built up to the sort of standards that they ought to have been. And that industry is quite closely connected to Mr. Erdogan and his family. So Erdogan was way behind in the polls, but in the first round of voting, he won the first round of voting and was just a whisker short of the 50% mark that he needed. I think he was on kind of 49.23%. Now in the second round of polling, um, he's also ahead. The last polling I saw, he was on something like 54%, which to me sounds like he's beyond the margin for error. So uh, Turkey's very interesting because it's, it's quite clear that Kilt Daroglu is the uh, Western-backed candidate, and I don't think he's done anything to dispel that notion. Um, he even visited the UK and the US where he was interviewed by the Washington Post and he had meetings with the World Bank and at Harvard University, um, which is important because actually um, I, I saw an opinion poll that showed that something like three quarters of Turkish people were in favor of good relations with Russia. Whereas Kulturoglu, it seems in his statements, would kind of toe the Western line to a much greater degree than uh, Erdogan, who's tried to balance between East and West. And nine out of 10 Turkish people uh, view the United States as a hostile country. So I'm not sure that uh, making it quite so obvious that uh, Kilt Daroglu is the Western candidate is something that's been positive. But what are your thoughts on this, Philip Pilkington? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a bit of reading on it. Um, I, uh, I think it's all smoke and mirrors. I don't think, um, I don't know, what, how do we pronounce it? Kilic the Roju? I think did C is a, has a 
squiggly on it, which you you say cheer. But anyway, um, I'm kind of hoping he doesn't win, but just so I don't have to pronounce his name all the time. <laughs> but the uh, so he's actually signaled that he's going to continue the the balanced uh, the balancing act between Russia and NATO. Um, he's he's promised to uh, continue to allow the construction of that Kyiv nuclear power plant, which is being built by Russians. Um, I I don't think there's much room for him to maneuver. I mean, they, they you know the West always disliked Erdogan, but I I think they disliked him, yeah, partially for the Russia stuff, but also because of the Islamist stuff, right? And Kilic Daroglu is is a is a young Turk policies from the Ataturk party. And they're the ones that used to run the military and engage in a coup every time the, the Islamists took over, until Erdogan. Um, and uh, and so I think we're kind of still playing with the old um, rule book here. Um, it seems to me like, and from what I've read, I, I don't think this is that controversial. Um, Turkey's just way too stitched in to the uh, Russian nexus now to, 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 to get it out. Um, Russia isn't one of like Turkey's top five trade partners or top three anyway. Um, but it, it runs, Turkey runs a huge current account deficit with Russia. The, the, the current account deficit that runs with Russia is equal to the entire Turkish current account deficit. Um, so basically their entire current account deficit is accounted for by their current account deficit with Russia. And of course that's mainly energy. Um, Turkey's obviously had some really big problems with inflation and the lira uh, for God, how long now? Years, right? Nearly, nearly a decade, really. Um, so Russia has a great deal of power over the um, over the Turkish economy, and actually, since the war started, um, well, not since the war started, but uh, since late last year, for the last six months, uh, Turkish inflation rates have been falling. That doesn't mean inflation is falling. It's still um, around 40% a year, which is obviously very high. But it's down from the almost 90% a year that it hit at its peak. So um, I haven't done enough work to figure out exactly what's driving that. But I'm guessing it has to do with the fact that Russia and Turkey have formed closer ties. And there's a lot of discussion about Turkey becoming some sort of natural gas hub for Russia. So... Turkey's fortunes have really been favorably impacted by the war. They've been favorably impacted by the fragmentation, the global fragmentation that's taken place. And my impression is that, you know, the Turkish state wants that to continue. And I mean the Turkish state with a capital S. I don't really, I don't really think it matters if somebody who's willing to go to Western meetings and make nice is in charge. I, I don't think the issues are what they were 10 years ago when a lot of it did have to do with Islam versus the secularists and all that. Now, the only game in town, as far as I can tell, is to continue doing what they're doing. And I think there's actually a, a decent amount of recognition in this. Now, the newspapers won't tell it to you because, I mean, the newspapers have become awful at analysis. I mean, it's embarrassing, really. But if you read the kind of more specialist publications or the long-form articles... I think the kind of people who actually know what they're talking about, their only real hopes for this are that he kind of resets relations a little bit, turns up at a couple of meetings, um, you know, makes nice, isn't like vicious toward the West. Um, some of the interior minister I saw on Twitter recently was, was I don't know, what do you say? 
America, American-oriented policies are treason or something. I mean, that's what he was saying this week. That guy's been on it for a while. He's been complaining about the American relationship for a while. I think he's the kind of anti-American point man of the government. But he is interior minister. I mean, he's not some kind of crackpot backbencher. Um, so I think like that like overt rhetorical stuff would probably go away. But everything I can tell, I just I just think that the the alignment now that's taking place or the realignment. Um, Turkey is playing its hand as best they can. They're playing very well, frankly. And I don't think that um, an election is going to upset that. Um, and frankly, I don't think he's going to, uh, the Kilic Road, Road Blue is going to win the election. But even if he did, I think it would, it, would be, um, it would be smoke and mirrors in terms of a victory. I don't think anything serious would change. Yeah, the interesting thing is that... Um for instance, I know that John, the infamous John Bolton, has set up an NGO to uh, unseat uh, Erdogan, and I wonder whether, if Erdogan wins, there's going to be some kind of effort, at least, to have a uh, color revolution protest on the street, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in, in favor of democracy, right after an election. You know, the usual. The usual mo. Um, I'm not sure of your thoughts on that, but before you give them, Philip, um, I'd like to say we've got some really interesting and high quality listeners here, um, and we've also got some multipolarity regulars here. So I'd be absolutely delighted if um, people put in speaker requests. We'll probably have a, a brief discussion, Philip and I, about uh, Europe and where uh, Europe is sitting, because there's a lot of uh, that seems to be an interesting battle for the for the foreign policy soul of Europe going on at the moment. Uh, but we'll talk about that briefly and then perhaps take some questions and hopefully start something of a debate. We've got um, the we've got Tinksorg here. Uh, we've got Swamp Ghost. We've got uh, Gladden Papin here as well. So if anybody wants to put in a speaker request, uh, please do. Uh, one thing I would remind people of, if you do want to do this. This is being recorded, and this time as well, hopefully, it'll then be put up as a podcast as well as a kind of a, a special uh, gonzo edition of the Multipolarity podcast. So just bear that in mind. But Philip, um, do you think that if Erdogan does win, there's going to be uh, some kind of tumult in Turkey, perhaps uh, efforts to kind of break the lira because I know that Turkey has, as you say, a huge current account deficit. It doesn't have a great many uh, reserves, although I think they've been boosted recently by um, Moscow. Um, you know, any chance that there could be kind of a, an, a, an effort to kill the Turkish economy, protests on the streets, the sort of thing that perhaps we've become accustomed to in this day and age? I mean, I... I... I, I think Russia controlled the lira more than anybody else. I mean, it's all energy revenues. As far as I can tell, as I said, the inflation started to come down at the end of last year. Um, so I don't think uh, I don't think there's really a possibility of that. Um, I mean, there might be some short-term turmoil in lira markets or something. But um, yeah, I think it's mainly the Russians that are uh, in charge of that one. Um, in terms of protests, yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, some people don't like Erdogan, I suppose. But, I mean, come on, there was a coup there, an attempted coup in, what, 2016. I mean, like, that was that was it for any 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 kind of old-school Turkish generals or, like, you know, 
slightly dubious regime change stuff like that that i i would have thought that all ended in 2016 and incidentally by the way i did read that killer deroglu was uh was was very against the um the coup d'etat attempt in 2016 so um so if there was any shakiness or whatever i'm guessing that the opposition candidate would also come out and say look it's a democratic election like leave it alone um, but yeah, I mean, who knows? There's not much point in speculating about it, really. But I just don't see that there's any moving the Turkey ship. I, I don't think I don't think there's any moving it at all, unless unless a, a huge new strategy is partaken on the part of the West that that provides tangible benefits to the Turkish, um, helps them stabilize their economy, is more attractive than than Russia's promises to turn it into a natural gas hub, which is very attractive to the Turks. Mm-hmm. Then forget about it. Turkey's on its course. It'll probably join the BRICS plus. You know, it may pull out of NATO eventually. You know, that's my thing. yeah. And uh, you know, I think in, in, about Russian energy as well. We shouldn't forget that uh, Russia is currently building a really big <clears throat> nuclear power project as well, which will give Turkey nuclear power for the first time in its history, and would probably go some way to reducing the current account deficit. It's a pretty big. Um, it's a pretty big project because traditionally Turkey has always been uh, reliant on energy imports. Um, so that's a that's another kind of um, card that Russia has to pay in this whole process, play in this whole process, I suppose. But moving on to um, uh, something, uh, uh, an area that perhaps could be moved, actually, if Turkey is not for moving. Um, let's talk about Europe. Um, on our multipolarity podcast. Uh, I think last week or perhaps oh, the week before last, um, you and I spoke about this kind of battle in Europe at the moment between uh, the Atlanticists and what I've called the autonomists. That is to say, those who essentially want to maintain transatlantic relations with Washington, no matter the cost. They want to go along with Washington's uh, crusade, both, both on the eastern approaches of Europe and in the western Pacific against China. And they view it of, as of paramount importance uh, for Europe's security and uh, economic power to cleave closely to the United States. And therefore, they're willing to sacrifice in the short term, as they see it, uh, quite significantly in the economic sphere uh, in exchange for maintaining uh, those ties. And that compares to, as I say, what I call the autonomists, those who want to pursue greater European strategic autonomy, whereby, of course, they would still maintain very good relations with Washington. Uh, the United States would still be a significant uh, trading power. There'd be a great, a great deal of uh, military, um, you know, interoperability and uh, codependence between the two. But diplomatic relations and trade relations would be more transactional. That is to say, that Europe would follow a path that was in Europe's interest. So, for instance, if the U.S. wanted to go into a crazy trade war with China, and that was going to further uh, harm the European economy by, you know, joining in on efforts to isolate and cut off China, the Europeans would kind of say no. Uh, And it seems to me on one side, you've got, you know, people like uh, Annalena Baerbrook in in Germany, the uh, German foreign minister, uh, the Green Party, 
uh, co-leader. Um, you know, you also have the United Kingdom, which is very Atlanticist. Uh, perhaps the Italians as well, and uh, Giorgia Meloni, uh, and on the uh, and, and of course the kind of European uh, Central Command itself, uh, with Borrell and uh, von der Leyen, are arch Atlanticists. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people like uh, Emmanuel Macron, who has recently staked out a vision for Europe that uh, perhaps was a bridge between West and East, a Europe that, you know, really followed its own strategic goals. And you also have ideas, for instance, from Hungary. Uh, we on the Multipolarity podcast uh, detailed a really interesting uh paper from Hungary, a kind of foreign policy strategy, uh, which I think was very well considered, uh, very subtle, very interesting and very clever. Uh, this idea of, of keeping trade open with the rest of the world and, and, and treading a more delicate diplomatic line. Um, this is an ongoing battle, really, between the kind of the Atlanticists and people who want strategic autonomy. Um, what have you seen in the last few weeks, Philip, uh, you know, about this battle? How's it going? Are the Atlanticists winning? Is, is Europe going to swing firmly into the American camp? Or is it slowly going to develop into a kind of a, a pole of its own in the multipolar world? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say about it is it's, it's really shades of grey with the Atlanticists and the autonomists. Um, I think your summary of it's pretty good, but you know, there's, there's kinks in that because there's like James Cleverly, foreign secretary here in the UK, uh, gave a kind of a speech saying, you know, uh, that was kind of against Washington foreign policy, frankly. Uh, it didn't get much attention. Uh, the, the newspapers seem to be dogmatically Atlanticist. Um, I think the ex-head of the foreign ministry, I can't remember his name, here in the UK, is kind of doing the rounds at the moment. Uh, I think he was saying something about multipolarity, somebody was telling me, at a, at a debate um, with Fiona Hill. Somebody sent me something on that. Um, don't quote me on it. Um, but the, so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of shades, it's kind of shades of grey, I think. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an, it's a, uh, I'd call it a, I'd, I'd last put it that it's kind of, you know, opposed parties as it's opposed narratives that are trying to win out. Um, the one thing I'd say about it is that the, the Atlanticists used to have a very good and convincing party line. I'm thinking during the Cold War, especially toward the end of the Cold War, um, and uh, at, the, at the emergence of the kind of unipolar post-Cold War uh, world order centered around America. I think the Atlanticists had a very strong party line. And actually, when you encounter people who are very Atlanticists these days, they tend to be, how should I put it, de put it delicately, of a certain vintage. They, they're baby boomers, okay? Baby boomers blame them for everything. Um, they, they, tend to, they tend to actually be thinking about the world in a way that, that is kind of 1992, uh, rather than 2023. And, um, and so their arguments seem a little stale and out of date. Um, a lot of the time they don't, I mean, you said, you said earlier that, you know, the UK, the US uh, foreign policy strategy seemed to be confused, sloppy and all over the place. Um, you know, their, their ability to justify these things is equally sloppy all over the place. I, I think a lot of them don't even understand what's actually going on in the world anymore. They, they haven't checked statistics since 1994. They, you know, they're not aware of, of a lot of developments. And then the younger crowd that are, I, I would say, you know, hardline Atlanticists um, tend, 
not to put too fine a point on it, but tend to be very unimpressive. I mean, there's no other real way of saying it. I mean, you, you mentioned Annalena Baerbock. I think it was this week she was over in Saudi Arabia and she handed the foreign minister, like, I think it was a book she wrote on, like, feminism and diplomacy. I mean... Yeah okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as far as I understand, it was the um, it was a book about the struggle for um, the struggle for women's rights. That was that 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 that's what it was about. I mean, like if that's if that's you know she's a core representative of the Atlanticists in Europe. If that's the kind of person you're picking, like. I mean, people will just laugh at that. Like, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, I, I think she went to China as well, as I remember. Uh, that don't have the details in front of me, but uh, she went to China and uh, gave a kind of lecture about human rights and things like that as well. Uh, it seems to be quite a common, uh, you know, common issue with a lot of people of this uh, political stripe that they can't. You know, I read a very, I mean, just to kind of get a little bit deeper into this, and, and, and I might be drifting into barstool philosophy here, but I, I, I read a very interesting essay, very long essay as well, by uh, Wolfgang Streeck, the, um, the left-wing uh, German uh, social um, scientist and philosopher. And he, he, he made a very interesting point that struck home to me that uh, for a lot of people on the new left, um, and this gets back to what we were talking about, how the hippies had become the kind of the, 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 the warmongers in the modern age. Their kind of campaign, their kind of liberal progressive, um, crusades in the, um, in their kind of domestic, uh, markets, if you like, or their, the, the, the kind of their home countries are inseparable from their similar crusades when it comes to foreign policy. Now, I'm not saying this is true of all the Atlanticists. I think there's a, a more um, kind of semi-realist Atlanticist perspective as well. But certainly for those on the kind of the progressive left, like um, Ms. Bierbock, um, the 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 kind of the crusades for things like, and I, and I pass no moral judgment on this before, you know, people go crazy at me. Uh, but the, the crusades on things like trans rights, women's rights, um, environmental matters, all of these things are inseparable from the position that they take in foreign policy. You know, they view, they view foreign policy as that same crusade to bring human rights to the oppressed essentially. And they view countries like Russia, like China, like Saudi Arabia as oppressors, for better or for worse. And therefore, uh, in the same way that they want to uh, rescue women from the tyranny of men and uh, people of color from the tyranny of uh, white folks and uh, transgender from the tyranny of heterosexual or cis-normative uh, people. Um, so they want to release uh, people in those countries from the tyranny of their oppressive rulers. And I genuinely believe there's something in that, the, the kind of roots that you can go back to the, the late 60s and, um, you, you know, people, uh, philosophers like Glucksmann and uh, uh, Henri Bernard Lévy uh, from France. You look at the shift that they made from kind of uh, Leninists and Maoists and their kind of... Uh, disenchantment with the actual results of those two uh, ideologies in uh, 1960s uh, China and Russia and their shift toward this kind of, you know, like progressive universalism. Uh, Bernard Kuchner as well is, a, is kind of another one with Medicine Sans Frontier. And I, so I think that 
people like Baerbock and, and people on the liberal left in the UK, when you read newspapers like The Guardian and you read some of the foreign policy views there, uh, are very much of that heritage. It, it, it's part of a crusade which is really inseparable from uh, their kind of domestic crusades and, and, and the kind of the culture wars that they run domestically. And I think that's why uh, people like the German foreign minister cannot keep their mouths shut when they go to places like Saudi Arabia and China. Yeah, I, but I think I'd highlight the two generations there that you're talking about. I think the, the 60s, I mean, sometimes they're called neocons, right? They used to be Trotskyists and then they turned into conservatives in the 70s or whatever. Well, sort of conservatives. Um, the, the, that generation actually were in some way kind of impressive, but the younger generation that's taken the baton from them isn't impressive. They're kind of idiots. They're not, they're yeah. like, they're not. So I mean, like Baerbock is only 42 years old. She's, she's, she's what, born in 1980, something like that. She's a, a millennial. She's, a, she's right? our age. She's our age. Yeah. I mean, yeah. let's call a spade a spade. I'm a little younger than her. But, like, I know that generation, and those people aren't the most impressive out of that generation by a long shot. They're, they're not impressive at all. And so I think what happened, I think everything started to go wrong here in the Obama administration. I think the during the Obama administration, they started making, the Americans started using these left liberal networks as their main foreign networking like thing that th these would be all the gathering and they convinced themselves that the young people who were young at the time of the obama administration they're in their mid-20s late 20s early 30s and um, i think they thought that this was the, this was it these were the really impressive people of the future these were the politically active people of the future and so on and these are our generation so we know them they weren't any of those things they they their ideology ran out of gas really quickly uh, they, they they didn't they, that generation of left liberals have not produced a single interesting writer or thinker at all. No one, absolutely no one. So they just bet on a really bad horse there. And so, and so you're getting these kind of clumsy, I, I think I, I had an essay once where they were called like boomer traditionalists, boomer trads. Like they, they were like the, the trads of the boomers. So they needed to like implement and maximize the boomer ideology. So they're, they're like, and the other thing about them is that they're really like, they're the good kids. You know, they are kind of in a way the good kids. They're like, you had a generation of liberals before them that were their parents. And they grew up to embody these right and correct ideas. They weren't the dissidents like their parents were. They weren't the creative types. They were quite slavish. And they go and they check boxes to get into universities. And then they check boxes, ideological boxes to get into jobs and so on. And I think the Americans bet on a bad horse there. When they backed the, for want of a better word, neoconservative converts in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, they were backing a pretty good horse. You had people like Christopher Hitchens. Say what you want about Christopher Hitchens, good order, okay rider. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan, but, you know. No, nor am I. Guy. He was a talented guy, though, in many sense. There's no Chris Hitchens of the of the of our generation liberal left. They're not an impressive bunch of people. And so I think the US backed a really bad horse there at the exact same time as they were on the cusp of the American empire, or call it what you will, the current world order splintering and fracturing. And it's, um, and, and that's why I think that the, that the Atlanticist versus um, uh, independent debate in Europe it's 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 you don't have very good 
younger people on the Atlantis' side, and they're not making a very coherent case. And it's all kind of, it's all kind of, uh, inher- it's all, all the power that's there is inherited. All the intellectual muscle that's there is over 60, over 70, maybe. Um, bit out of touch with things. It just, uh, I don't think, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's going anywhere. And, and just to say, like, if you contrast that with somebody like Emmanuel Macron, I'm not a huge fan of Macron, honestly, but he's relatively young. He's clearly quite smart and he's, you know, he's willing to say things and go against the grain and so on. Now, Macron is a really unusual case because he's a, he's an ideological like freak. In a sense. <laughs> like he doesn't fit into any particular category, but like when you put him against Annalena Baerbock, you're like, there's no competition. There's absolutely no competition in terms of who is a more innovative uh, risk taking Etc. person. And I, I think that's what's ultimately going to drive the debate in Europe. It'll be an intellectual debate. It's not just compared with Macron. If you look, for instance, at the difference between um, Baerbock and uh, Jai Shankar, her opposite number in India, he's the Minister of External Affairs in India, and she is the Foreign Minister of Germany. I mean, Germany is a powerful state. It's a populist state. It's got a highly educated population. It's got a strong tradition of um, uh, competency in public administration. She should be a really high quality individual there. But if you compare with her with Jai Shankar, the Indian foreign minister, um, the difference is huge. Like go on YouTube, YouTube and watch him be interviewed, watch him do uh, conferences and round tables, watch him give speeches. And he's obviously a hugely competent, um, intelligent individual who is on top of his brief. You watch people like Baerbock and, and, and Liz Truss, who's probably, what, like 45, so maybe a little bit older, but of a kind of similar age. And it's it's kind of clown time. I mean, Truss went to Moscow and then didn't even know her brief enough to know the difference between Russian territory and, and Ukrainian. Didn't even know her brief to tell the difference between the Baltic and the Black Sea. It was a kind of national embarrassment. And you can see, obviously, the... Um, the difference in quality, I mean, it's not even something you need to research or read about or particularly be aware of foreign policy. You can just see it. It's obvious. And then and that's before we get into places like Singapore. And, um, you know, with regard to Macron, again, I'm, I'm not a great fan. I, I think it's reasonable to, to suggest that he's, he's probably an easy man to kind of dislike <laughs> from afar. Um, but I, I don't think there's much doubt that of the traditional Western European powers, he's probably the leader with the best grasp of his nation's strategic imperatives and the clearest-eyed vision of how to achieve such strategic goals. He actually has a, a, a plan, a strategy, and I think he goes about it reasonably well. Um, I'm always quite impressed with his, his kind of foreign policy efforts. And as I say, if you, you know, if you compare that to some of the kind of the, the, the louder Atlanticists, it's pretty kind of, I mean, if you compare Macron with von der Leyen, who's again, a hugely unimpressive, uh, individual, um, or as you say, Baerbock, um, 
and indeed the Green Party are starting to be savaged in the polls in Germany. The last I saw, they've they've really plummeted. Um, but I suppose my view is that Atlanticism is kind of bedded in in Europe. It, it it's it, it's kind of really deep seated. It's it's its roots are. Its root system is broad, and it's got a, a, a much greater support than the idea of European strategic autonomy. So, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure if the fact that its its kind of leading figures are idiots is is going to perhaps damage Atlanticism. If I had to bet, if the U.S. kind of plunges into some foolhardy, uh, you know, real trade war with with, with China, and I, you know, I think there's been some skirmishing and quite serious skirmishing on the front lines recently, but if they go kind of full trade war against China, my instinct is that Europe would be dragged along with that. But I know that you feel differently about that. And and, and certainly Europe's already been quite significantly damaged by its willingness to let America be the locomotive that pulls the train on Europe's eastern approaches. You know, we see we're starting to see significant uh, damage to the German industrial base now which is Europe's most powerful um, and probably most resilient economy as well. And we're already starting to see quite significant uh, deindustrialization there. Um, uh, But my instinct is that they might be pulled along on the kind of anti-China train as well. I don't think so. I I think every step in this direction burns political capital in Europe. They don't have uh, – the Atlanticist crowd don't have uh, innovative, thoughtful people at their helm. They have people who are made fun of on Twitter. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, Annalena Baerbach was being made fun of on Twitter. Like, and doing stuff like that will get you made fun of on Twitter. Um, Maloney's more interesting because she's kind of part of the emerging new ride, I guess. And she's kind of different. And she's towing an Atlanticist party line. I've actually been watching that quite closely because I'm like, okay, how would a hybrid – like that work but the interesting thing about maloney is macron can go out and make a speech you know on a plane back from beijing <laughs> uh on why europe should uh, should follow a more independent path maloney uh governs like an atlanticist but i don't think i've seen her give any coherent idea to why she's doing this or what it means um i just think that case is really hard to make now because of the changes in the world it's a very unpragmatic case, which always kind of goes against things. And as I said, it's just, you know, they don't have the quality of people to to, to make the case even rhetorically. So um, I think, I think you know, as we were talking about the China thing earlier, and I think, you know, Biden talking about the silly balloon and the South Koreans saying no to the Micron uh, uh, counter sanctions, um, I think this is kind of running out of gas. And I think we might see kind of things get a little bit more stable and, um, you know, people start to accept the realities a little bit more. Um, but yeah, that's just my feeling. But are we going to, are we going to do Q and A or? Yeah, we've got Francisco who's put in a speaker request. I'm going to ask Francisco uh, for his question now. Um, but in the meantime, if uh, anybody else wants to put in a speaker request, I've invited to speak swamp, uh, to speak, uh, a couple of people, uh, Swamp Ghost, uh, Tinksorg, a couple of others, but please, uh, put in speaker request, stick your hand up and, uh, join the conversation. Uh, first up, Francisco, sir, what do you have to say? Hello, guys. How are you doing? Uh, big fan of the podcast. 
I have a quick question about the what, what you guys think regarding the general orientation of United States foreign policy, because it seems to me that the recurrent theme here uh, between you guys and people that kind of know what, what's going on, on my opinion, is that how insane in terms of rationality the United States has been going, uh, even after this recent turn in terms of trying to contain China, trying to go back to a real politic and something like that. It seems to me that, that there seems to be going on in terms of a inability to grasp the fact that they kind of drank Kool-Aid of the history and of neoliberalism and when they woke up it was kind of too late. <laughs> it was too late to try to contain China and seems to be a, a emotional and mental inability of the whole landscape in the West and especially in the United States to grasp with this fact that ra rationally speaking, pragmatically speaking, the West and the United States, they are in fact more of a uh, defensive position uh, without an advantage and people just don't seem to be able to deal with this fact regarding uh, China's ascension and, uh, and the emergency of the multipolar world. And so I would like to, to uh, see what you guys think about this what an emotional, uh, ideological inability that is preventing the West to, to go in a more pragmatic, realistic, especially in the United States. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Philip Pilkington? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what's going on. It's And it's a generational thing. It's what we were saying earlier. It's like a boomer thing. Um, they, yeah, they, they're completely wedded to this vision. Uh, nothing outside of that makes sense to them. Um, the real problem, I mean, there are a few. Uh, it's, it's, as I say, it's mainly generational. The younger people who think like this are just goody-two-shoes types who, like, you know, have checked every box to try and climb the ladder. Not thoughtful people. The thoughtful people among the baby boomers just don't, I don't think they really understand what's going on. I think one of the big problems is that they're being protected by everyone around them. Um, the media has become completely uncritical. It's become silly. I mean, like reading, I mean, you read the news, but you read kind of analysis stuff and you're just, it's a joke most of the time. It's, it's nonsensical. It's straight out of Pravda. Um, and so the, the media is kind of letting them away with it. It's not like they have this like ideological, emotional vision of the world, which is like 1992. And then they make all decisions and think about the world in that way. And the media don't push back and say, well, you know, China did this or South Korea said no to them or anything. They just, there's no pushback on that front because the media has become completely slavish and so on. And to my mind, I think this goes right up the chain. I think, I think military leaders aren't telling the boomers the truth. I think the, I think the intelligence agencies aren't telling them the truth. Um, you know, you hear stories about military analysts sending stuff up the chain and then it just getting kind of suppressed. And it's like, uh, it's like, I think it's actually Tinksorg is <laughs> lined up in the speaker's chair. But I think he said to me, it was like a Potemkin village. And it really feels that way. Like the whole thing's just this kind of dog and pony show 
put on for these people who are like over 70 and it just keeps them kind of locked in. It's very, very like the late Soviet Union in that regard. Um, it really feels that way, except instead of trying to hide the economic dysfunction, they're trying to hide the, the geopolitical dysfunction. Yeah, I would go along with that. There seems to be, um, I think, what we in the UK would call the Islington dinner party circuit and perhaps what you would call in the US the, the kind of the Manhattan charity auction set. They all have a very specific view of the world. And because you have people, uh, especially obviously because the US matters most and the UK matters a lot less, uh, kind of ensconced in uh, the US State Department who basically have had their whole careers uh, under the unipolar moment. They've, uh, you know, they haven't known a bipolar or a multipolar world order where smaller powers, smaller states have options. There's a, an option on the table. And there's also another great power to kind of, to, to block your actions at the margins, basically. They, they've run their whole careers in a unipolar, uh, moment when, Basically, the U.S. could do what the hell it wanted, and promotion was reliant on uh, adhering to a certain ideology, uh, which you know you might call neoconservatism. I think some people call it liberal interventionism or liberal universalism, when it's the Democratic Party that's involved rather than the Republicans. But either way, kind of promotion uh, through the ranks of the State Department, through the ranks of the of the think tanks uh, who form a great deal of policy um, was reliant on on adhering to this kind of worldview seeing the world through this intellectual framework so I think it's actually the, the, there's actually quite a lot of institutional inertia at the moment you, you know you have some kind of semi insiders people you know most prominently like El, Elbridge Colbury who has a very hawkish view on China but at least his hawkish view on China has intellectual consistency Right. Like he, he would want to cool things right off on Europe's Eastern approaches. Ideally, I'm sure he would have liked to have done a deal with Russia that would have kind of taken it to neutral status or maybe even brought it into the kind of Western alliance. But in the absence of the ability to do that, he'd like to cool things off in Europe, draw down from European involvement, give the Europeans some kind of strategic autonomy so that the U.S. could focus on China. And while the U.S. was building up its uh, economic and military capacity to deal with China, really dial down the rhetoric. He's like a big opponent of some of the, uh, you know, despite being a China hawk, he's a big opponent of that, uh, of the, the the current level of rhetoric. Um, but there's so much bureaucratic uh, uh, inertia within America. They're still, as Philip says, kind of running, uh, the, you know, the old kind of early to late 90s playbook where the U.S. was in uh, Madeleine Albright's view, the indispensable power, where it, it, you know, it didn't just have a kind of a right, but almost a moral obligation to, to go around the world bringing kind of democracy and, uh, and liberal economics uh, to, to, to benighted people at the end of a gun barrel. And uh, it's very difficult for these, for the people who see the world like that to, uh, understand the world as it is. And I think there's a bit of even cognitive dissonance going on at the moment. Uh, that's my view. I'm not sure. Did that answer your question, Francisco? Yeah, yes, for sure. I, I just like it because it's kind of my area of study. I study 
focus on uh, have a PhD in political sociology, political uh, social theory. I studied the relation of ideology and uh, political process and political dynamics, and, and I try to focus more on this uh, more emotional side because I think you can't really separate that much like people in the um, international relationship field usually do the ideological uh, emotional level from the, the the rationality and i think this emotional component is, is very powerful especially in the united states that prevents them from from a more pragmatic approach yeah i agree with that i think there's a lot of emotion you know you read certainly the british papers and there is but um moving on to our next speaker somebody else who is an academic involved in economics uh peter ryan sir what do you have to say and after you we'll go on to uh tinksorg hey guys a uh, long time listener first time caller um I wanted to ask about the description you gave the political think tank class where the young generation is incompetent and stupid, uh, to sum it up. Do you extend that categorization to the private sector, especially the global financial sector? Do you find that the young generation employed in that has similar incompetencies and just can't do it like the old generation did? Well, I think that's definitely a question for Philip Pilkington. Have at it, sir. That is a really good question. Um, I haven't thought about that that much. Um, yeah, I think so probably. I mean, definitely, you know, it's it's uh, the libertarians would love it if the government was the only one bad at organizing, as the Romans used to say, the curses honororum or honorum, I can't remember how it's pronounced, you know, the, the, the way that you give out plaudits to promote people. But I think the corporate sector is just as bad. I mean, it's not quite as bad as government. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. But there are definitely loads of, um, I'm sure people can use their imagination, cheap ways to get ahead in the corporate world these days. I can't say that it would be as bad as in as in the uh, government sector. I, I, I think the private sector still has an element of meritocracy about it, and you can only really get so far, you know, um, plumping up your CV, uh, going to the right, like, virtue signal meetings, and, you know, showing up and saying nothing, in a sense. Um, you know, there's a certain level of aggression, even in kind of bigger corporations, that, that probably wouldn't allow complete domination of that but it definitely feels like the the younger generation in the corporate sector have the whole thing's kind of ossified a lot um i mean i worked for finance for years and what was really striking was that the the regulations that were put in place that were supposed to solve the problem of boom and bust uh oops <laughs> that didn't work banks are failing um but what they did do was they they turned corporations into these almost kind of Soviet entities. Um, I remember a friend of mine um, who works in finance, who works for one of the big firms in New York, joked with me that you know we were all uh, we were all apparatchik, you know, we were all all apparatchiks in the in the finance corporate finance industry because of all the layers of kind of risk management, and now you have ESG on top of risk management and all this, and some of it's government. You know, the regulations they put there in government. Yellen told us it would prevent another banking crisis. Yeah, right. 
didn't. Um, and then the ESG is voluntary. Um, but there are all these kind of um, these kind of groups that are that have invaded the private sector, and they're kind of selling ideological stuff and then they get kind of into positions of power and it grinds up the gears i definitely feel that the corporate sector has become a lot more bureaucratic a lot less interested in profit maximization which is weird um and a lot more mediocre at the same time you know we talked about jamie diamond going over to china Jamie Dimon knows he has to go to China and he'll do it if he's as long as somebody doesn't like put a huge roadblock in his way. So I think there is still a little bit, a little bit more um, room for maneuver there. And actually, I think if, if the if the what I'd consider the failed China strategy of the last year does collapse, I think that the private sector will have played a large role in that. Um, but overall, yeah, I think our generation's a little disappointing. Uh, partly due to quality, but partly due to the way that the rules of the game have been stacked by the more senior generation. Um, they they seem to want to pick people uh, in their own image. There's a little bit of narcissist in the river there, I think. And just to add this, uh, add to this, it's it, it's very clear that in the private sector and even in the public sector, in in, in certain nooks and crannies of the public sector. There are highly competent people and they're like really quite impressive companies and businesses. But I would say two things. First of all, as a whole, the professional managerial class within the West is, as far as I can see, really quite unimpressive. It's not really good at managing. I think there's been a, a kind of a, a professionalization of management itself, uh, of the kind of the art or science of management, that really hasn't had the results that people perhaps thought that it would have. I think that, you know, perhaps things were better when the doers from the bottom kind of worked their way up and became CEOs or started their own companies rather than having, you know, a whole bunch of kind of Harvard MBAs or, or you know, like people below that actually as professional managers and you know, bringing in kind of McKinsey and similar consultancy firms and, you know, big four accountancy firms. I'm not sure the economy is better run in this kind of way. And I, I think as a whole, the professional managerial class is unimpressive and they tend to run a lot. Um, so I, I don't know if that adds anything at all to your kind of question, but that's certainly the way I see it. I think that's really tied in with the fact that in the West, we have lost the art of doing things and getting things done. Like, you know, you compare how long it takes to build like a rail line or a bridge in Britain compared to how long it takes in China, like how long it takes just to get through the planning process, you know, like actually doing stuff. I'm, I'm not sure we're that good at that anymore. So uh, that's my perspective, but I'm not sure if you want to add something to this, uh, Peter. I, I think that's it. Those were all uh, very fine answers. Um, but yeah, it just sort of begs the question of, uh, you know, will the meritocracy of the market, quote unquote, uh, or any pocket of it, will the sort of high performers and rationalists wake up and, and redirect society in a sense. Uh, and it seems like the conclusion is while there is 
uh, merit in those sectors, uh, the overall trend is enveloping them too, and we're headed for a general uh, mediocre future. Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember listening to Multipolarity, but one of the things that Philip said on uh, one of the uh, issues that we talked about, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, is he felt that the the kind of the the wind has been had uh, gone from the sails of uh, of Silicon Valley. The kind of stuffing had been knocked out of them, and and, and that's something I, that I feel as well. Like you know, fifteen years ago, it was a really innovative, interesting place with a lot of innovative, interesting people. But now I, I see this the kind of the business models of a lot of these startups is being kind of reaching a position where they can just become rent seekers within certain kind of slivers of certain marketplaces and segments, you know, where they can just really reach monopoly level and, 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 and you know, behave as rentiers, essentially from an economic perspective and, or, or maybe get sold to one of the, one of the big companies. I, I, you know, like I don't see huge amounts of value added in the, in the way that you saw kind of 10, 15, certainly 20 years ago, from that area and it, it it's kind of a little bit if that's the best and the brightest i don't know don't know what <laughs> what the rest of us are like but um let's move on to tinksorg one of the more infamous members of this uh, part of twitter tinksorg wonderful to speak to you finally sir thank you i don't know what you're talking about with the infamous part i mean there's absolutely nothing about me that would cause any sort of concern uh, but <laughs> But putting that aside for a moment, um, I guess my question to you was, I just wanted to see your sense of like the American domestic situation. And I'm thinking of, of two things here that are interconnected. So the first thing is just the economic crisis. And the second thing is like how that economic crisis and the systemic banking crisis will actually influence, um, I guess, like party politics, but the domestic situation in general, because it's pretty clear now that Ron DeSantis has announced and that the, you know, the Republican primary has begun in earnest like seven months before any voting is to take place. And as someone who's followed the scene of the quote unquote new right for like since 2019, I guess, it's pretty stunning how, you know, after Trump won, you had a lot of people um, showing some sort of interest in, in economic questions in general. And there was all of this talk about the like new um, uh, Republicans being the new working class party and so on. And the, what you see today is that most of those people who used to... Um, cover that beat are now essentially like the 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 activity on that in that sphere has essentially fallen to zero uh, and people are talking about you know well this library in arkansas had you know a a transsexual or a drag queen or you know the this beer company did this um commercial with this um like drag queen influencer and so on. Like this is the horizon for a lot of people. And so if you want to follow like the economic development today, you're basically left to the business press and like maybe some talk from, you know, some of the smarter Democrats 
or like organizations like Mises or whatever, like there's absolutely no interest that I can see um, on the, like the institutional GOP in terms of, okay, what do we do to actually solve the, the long-term like fiscal problems for the United States? And so I guess, what is your sense of where the U.S. is headed in that direction and what kind of, uh, impact this will have on politics? That's a super good question. That's a really great question. And, um, I think it's definitely one for Philip Pilkington because it's one of his uh, big areas of interest. And, and of course, don't forget to say that you, you've banned yourself from those Twitter feeds. <laughs> Andrew's, uh, Andrew's such a proud Brit that he won't pay any attention to American politics because British people pay more attention to American politics than they do to British uh, politics. I think that's fair to say. Right, Andrew? Um, the, uh, yeah, I, it, it's really interesting. I mean, it's not just in America, right? I mean, what we've seen unfold in the last... A uh, year, maybe eighteen months, is the similar collapse of of the Brexit thing here in the UK. Um, you know, people pin their hope on this so much, and they thought the world was going to change, and then it all turned out to be kind of a dud. I mean, look, the people who are saying that Brexit caused the inflation and the growth stagnation—that's all rubbish, right? Brexit basically did nothing. I mean, that's the that's the truth of it. I heard somebody. I overheard somebody actually at a at a conservative party adjacent conference the other day saying, you know, um, the only thing Brexit's meaningfully done is taken away my capacity to go into the European Union line, <laughs> the airport. And there's a lot of truth to that, to be honest. I mean, the courts, the courts is important, but the, um, you know, they're they're just replicating a lot of aspects of EU law now. Um, so the. The, the it's a yeah I I think you're right I I think this is kind of um it's a pity God and Papin's dropped off um I think this is something that uh, a lot of us felt and I think you're probably in that camp too Malcolm um that when the when the kind of political you know I don't know what you call them upheavals occurred uh you know near eight years ago now whatever it was seven years ago um. We thought that like everyone would have a big discussion about economic issues, and they didn't. Um, and of course, there were some corners. I mean, American Affairs was doing it big time. Um, I, I was thinking about it quite a lot. Um, and another thing that happened with the Trump thing is that um, I think Trump's instincts were kind of industrial policy-ish, and then they got channeled into trade war. So like the actual economic result of the Trump election has objectively been the current trade war that we just spent about 40 minutes making fun of or 20 minutes making fun of. So that was a total failure. And yeah, I think it speaks to kind of the broader thing that you're saying that there's just not a great deal of energy uh, on the right or anywhere else really to talk about uh, economic issues. And by the way, the left is just as bad in this regard. Look at the Inflation Reduction Act. The Democrats go out and they signal that they're doing industrial policy when it's really just like, you know, Green New Deal, right? It's just a repackaged Green New Deal. Um, so this is a problem across the board. Um, I mean, personally, okay, so what will it do to politics? I really feel like we're slipping into kind of a Brezhnev era. Um, I've been feeling that way for a while now where, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, Andrew and I, where, you know, 
if we see another financial crisis, which we almost certainly will, um, and another banking crisis, and that gets replayed, and the bailouts happen, and all that, people will just get kind of tired of it, and they won't want to look at it anymore. And I think some of the kind of culture war stuff is actually about that. It's not just about people kind of, um, you know, trying to trying to um, compensate for the fact they're not having a, an economic discussion. It's because the economic situation is so bad that they that they want a distraction from it, and it's something that they want to control. Um, the other problem is, um, and I think we'll probably discuss this on a potential future interview of somebody, no one in particular, uh, on the podcast, um, is, you know, is there actually any reversing a lot of these economic trends? I, I, I think it's worth, I know we have a doomer reputation already, but I think it is worth floating that maybe some of these trends actually aren't reversible at this stage. Maybe the chances of industrial policy working are actually relatively low at this stage, given the you know political energies as you outline them and the competencies in the state, frankly, um, even the competencies in the private sector, um, which are higher, but it's the kind of tallest dwarf in this regard. Um, maybe all this stuff is just you know not really going to happen. I mean, my feeling is, I mean, Andrew said that I, I gave that speech at NatCon the other day. And I was more so fo- focused on on family and demographics policies because I think we probably could get that right, and it might actually channel into the into the uh, culture wars rhetoric. Um, the the two other panelists on on my thing were about industrial policy. And while I'm a huge supporter of industrial policy, it's just I I think the probabilities that we get it right are 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 falling by the day. Not impossible. But I think, as you say, we need to have this much broader discussion. A lot of kind of like political events would need to be completely refocused on economics rather than having one economics panel for every 20 culture war on the right, green on the left. Okay, that's what you'd have to do. And there's no there's no money and energy behind that, as far as I can see. Um so I think I think I really feel increasingly. I know we're supposed to try and not be as doomerish because we're already have a rep- reputation for that. But I really feel late. We're in late Brezhnev era, and um, and a lot of the stuff that we're seeing in politics is actually kind of. I mean, how would you put it? It's kind of entertainment in a sense. It's bread and circuses, and um, and you know it's what we distract ourselves with because we don't want to you know, raise the question. I don't want to be that hopeless because, you know, I'll definitely go around and talk about stuff and we do the podcast and everything. Although the podcast is, I think, more about kind of rationalizing a transition to this world. So like that will have to happen. And the quicker people kind of like frame that in their head, the better it will be for everybody, but also for the West. Um, But in terms of like Western renewal, um, I have to say I'm quite pessimistic about it. I, 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 I can't see it in the next decade. And the other problem is I think there's a lot of path dependency built in here. It's not like you can get this wrong for another decade. And then, you know, in a decade, we have all the debates and we go, okay, now we've got like young people energized about these problems. Now, by the time that happens, you're on the path, you know, it's total path dependency and you're kind of, you're kind of locked in. That's my feeling. Andrew? Yeah, Philip's right that I do tend to try to avoid uh, U.S. domestic affairs. Um, first of all, because I think the politics is kind of like a WWF wrestling match. It's it's kind of you know 
absolutely ridiculous and, and, and probably you can't stop watching it when really, you know, you should be doing better things with your time. Uh, but secondly, as I said, like really annoys me that we're so obsessed with, uh, US politics in, in, in Britain and that we import so much poison from the US political scene into Britain, even when it doesn't apply at all. Um, and yeah, so maybe right. I'm too proud of Britain to do that. Whereas, you know, Philip is Irish, so it's free to go ahead and do it. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I don't know a lot about the nuts and bolts of the US economy. I do know this though, that it still has huge potential. It has, you know, fairly abundant natural resources compared to most of the rest of the developed world. It has a large population with a fairly young age of population. Um, it has uh, great intellectual resources. A lot of the kind of top 30, top 50 universities in the world are American, including, you know, technical and science universities at places like MIT. Um, it still has a decent sized manufacturing sector. And because of the, the size of its market, it can, it can reach the sort of scale that we can't reach in the UK within certain industries. So it still has a great deal of potential. I just, I get the feeling very much that, you know, over the last kind of 30 to 40 years of the neoliberal orthodoxy, uh, kind of after Reagan in the US and Thatcher in the UK and the way that both Tony Blair and Bill Clinton essentially took to heart those um those tenets of of that kind of economic form that we that as a culture really we've forgotten how to do economic policy and and, and we've forgotten how to do industrial strategy um we've forgotten that consumers are also producers um we've forgotten how to uh make stuff and uh, and do it extremely well there are some pockets that haven't for instance germany perhaps um but certainly the anglo-saxon countries have uh, have gone full on board in this and i i do think there's been a great deal of atrophying of um industrial and and, and administrative muscle there I also think that, as I say, like, you know, the British political scene is dreadful. But from what I see from abroad, and then, as I say, it, it's so bad that I, I kind of avoid it, that the US scene is even worse. You know, that it's, it's really poor form. And I guess there is hope that, you know, once the kind of boomers are finally swept away, once they get too old, there'll be a younger generation that come through. I think, uh, was it P Peter who, um, um, and Peter Ryan, who mentioned the, the, the kind of the younger rationalist, this is kind of rationalist movement. And in Britain, we've got people like Dominic Cummings, who are, are like really focused on public administration. I think maybe, you know, people like that could, you know, if there's a big crisis and the West is really seriously forced by dint of necessity to get its act together, then there may well be hope. I mean, in Britain, for instance, in the 1970s, although it was a kind of economic disaster zone, the quality of MPs was really high. Like, and, and a lot of them had fought in the war, you know, like on the conservative benches, uh, you know, you had people like Margaret Thatcher. Ted Heath was a very unpopular prime minister, but he had an amazing grasp of detail and public policy. Um, intellects on the back benches like Enoch Powell. On, the Labour benches were, if anything, even stronger with, you know, people like Dennis Wilson, Callahan, Healy, um, 
uh, Castle, uh, Peter Shaw. Um, all of these were like, you know, serious intellects and um, pretty good at what they did, actually, even though Britain was very much suffering at the time economically. The quality now compared to that is abysmal. So maybe if we're forced by necessity, uh, people might, you know, rise to the top in some kind of meritocratic way where we, you know, we can't, you know, we can't tolerate these glad handing networking buffoons any longer. And we have to bring people who are competent on board, but, you know, given the way that we've responded to COVID, given the way that we've responded to, um, what's happening in Ukraine, uh, from the media, from the political response, the diplomatic response, the industrial and military challenges. It's, it's difficult to find any hope. Yeah, if I can just like cut in here or just add one thing to what you said, where it's like, um, uh, what, what I think you said that, well, maybe the, the new generation that comes up in a crisis is going to be uh, like a solution here. I think that right now, like a lot of the people who want to be dissidents are kind of one of a piece of what you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, like these, these people that come up through the institutions and check all the boxes and so on. Like they're really not that impressive. Uh, I was looking at the, an interview with two of the people who are sort of movers and shakers in the depth ceiling showdown in, in the, the House of Representatives. And when they were talking about the budget, they basically said like, okay, so the big problem in the US is that, you know, 80% of government workers are Marxists and we're going to cut uh, Dr. Fauci's illegal biolabs. Like we're going to balance the budget or at least, you know, take the first step toward balancing the budget by, you know, not paying money to Dr. Foss's illegal biolabs where he <laughs> develops plagues. Yeah, and that's like, risible, isn't it? It's just risible. Yeah, it's it's really not good enough if your approach to um, like the, the problem of the U.S. fiscal situation long term. And what's going to happen if the treasury market turns like very illiquid because there's not enough demand for U.S. debt in the world to keep running these huge deficits? Like is talking about biolabs, which is an infinitely small part of discretionary, non-military discretionary spending, which is maybe 15% of the U.S. budget. You know, like these people aren't aging boomers who are senile. Like these are the new, the the hope of the um, quote unquote like dissidents who are going to take their country back. Yeah, you know, like the the speaking of of, of the Fauci biolabs, I think the way that we responded to the pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, was instructive. It, it became horribly politi- politi- politicized right from the start. You had. Nancy Pelosi going to Chinatown in San Francisco saying people had to hug Chinese people for fear of being racist. Uh, you had conspiracy theories which kind of seeped into the right. Um, you had a, a concerted effort to block any talk that it might have been a lab leak uh, for whatever reason. I, I don't quite know why that was blocked, but eventually it came became tied up with Trump. And it was actually really important to find out what had caused this because... You know, if, if COVID was a little bit less 
uh, transmissible and a little bit less uh, lethal, it would be seasonal flu, right? But there's no guarantee that it's going to be so, we're going to be so lucky the next time. And the, the, the response to that was really awful and really telling. And, you know, I just want to make a comparison. I'd like to bring, after, after I've made this comparison, Peter Ryan back in, because he's does research on economics at, I believe, New York University. So maybe he'll have something to say about this. Um, but in Singapore, the, the prime minister at the moment is Lee Kuan Yew's son. Right. So you might say, oh, this is a classic, a classic uh, case of, you know, dynastic transfer, essentially, the, you know, the sort that we perhaps suffer from in the West to a certain degree. But Lee Kuan Yew's son was studied mathematics and computer science at, at Cambridge University, at Trinity College in Cambridge. And he was actually the senior wrangler um, in his year. And for those who don't know, the... Um, the senior wrangler is, is the person who scores highest on this infamously difficult exam. I think it's called the uh, the mathematics tri tri tripod. I, I can't remember the exact name, but the senior wrangler has got the the, the senior wrangler in history has has produced some of the greatest theoretical mathematicians and physicists and and intellects you know of the last kind of two hundred years. Okay, then after that he he went and joined the Singaporean army. And he rose through the ranks to become a brigadier general. He then studied uh, public policy and governance at Harvard University and only then went into politics. And now he's prime minister. So Singapore has people of that caliber. It's like a tiny city state. Surely somewhere, somehow, you know, a country of 320 or 330 million officially and maybe as many as 350 unofficially could produce like I don't know, somebody 80% that smart and competent, right? Like, Can I say something on that just before we go to Peter really quickly, right? I think like people have to, <laughs> I'm really kind of like, you might call it like aristocracy pulled. I think an aristocracy always exists, right? I don't think there's any getting rid of an aristocracy. It always sort of exists. I, I think the key problem here, your example is really good. Um, aristocracies are like, congealments of human capital you can think of it that way right because um aristocracies aren't actually a bad formation they're a very natural formation and the idea is basically that people who are publicly spirited will raise other people who are publicly spirited and they'll make some sacrifices in their career they'll go into politics which can be kind of a dirty game relative to you know trying to make money in corporate life and they'll do it despite not being second rate Right. And that's that's the function either a real aristocracy plays or the quasi aristocracy that results <clears throat> from pretending aristocracy doesn't exist. The problem, I think, in the West is that we have a really rotten aristocracy. It's kind of a it's an aristocracy with an ideology of everybody gets a trophy. And what it does is it's it, it, it's it centers the, the younger our generation, especially aristocrats if you want to call it that it centers all their energy on what we might call like virtue signaling it's all moralistic it's all ideological and there's nothing about performance and there's nothing about kind of hard-nosed facts and again this goes back to the boomers the boomers were this kind of like idealistic revolutionary generation quote unquote around revolutionary and then they thought that you know well we fixed the place to this extent now we'll just raise this hyper ideological 
hyper-moralistic aristocracy, and they'll finish the job. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. And the reason the rest of the world has normally functioning aristocracies, like the one you talked about in Singapore, is because they haven't gone down that road. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to add to that as well. It, like, you know, if we're, you know, if we build a society around meritocracy, okay, there's a sense that, it, you know, if you are a member of the aristocracy, but, every, you know, we believe that everything is meritocratic these days rather than aristocratic and rather than having some kind of Anglo caste system um, that you've got there through dint of your own efforts, right? You owe nothing to anybody, right? Like the royal family still sends its male children to into the military, okay? Like did Tony Blair send his kids into the military? Did any of the new aristocracy send their kids into the military? No, they don't. Like, there seems to be very little sense of obligation. And that sense of obligation, which, which there is, tends to be, as Philip says, focused on things like virtue signal, signaling and emotive uh, causes of the day, which, when you actually look into them beyond kind of skin deep, turn out to be absolute nonsense, right? So I think you're right. It's like a, it's like a rotten aristocracy. Um, there's a lot of people who are very you know, impressed with themselves, but in fact, they're not very impressive individuals at all. Um, so I agree a hundred percent and it, it's like a serious problem, but it, you know, I'd like to think that somewhere out there, there are people that we could get involved in, in kind of higher politics to look at this sort of thing. Seriously, uh, Peter, you're very obviously American and you're an economics, uh, researcher at, at I think New York university. Um, What's your view on this kind of, you know, the U.S. economy and U.S. political economy and uh, the kind of the quality at the moment? And then after you've had your say, we'll go to Swamp Ghost, who's a very long-time listener of Multipolarity. Yeah, uh, just a clarification. Uh, not currently associated with NYU uh, right now. Um but so on the point of uh, the convergence of the, the strands of, of conversation here about the generational divides and um, kind of political economic ideology um, and looking towards an economic industrial policy. Uh, what's interesting in America, what seems to be kind of merging out of like the centrist Democrat left um, is a... Macronist uh, perspective on industrial policy. Uh, for instance, in uh, May 29, 2022, I have here a New York Times op-ed by Ezra Klein. He's in his late 30s. Uh, I think his most prominent uh, role was uh, being editor of Vox, a very millennial publication. Uh, his wife also writes for the Atlantic doing economic policy and stuff. Uh, but the title Yeah, I remember when he came through with, uh, with like Matthew Iglesias and uh, there was Matthew Iglesias, Ezra Klein and a couple of other kind of hotshots who started blogging when they were at university and they all got gigs at the New York Times and Vox and uh, kind of Center for, for uh, I forget the name of the think tank now. Um, but yeah, like, that kind of a brat pack of the kind of liberal left, right? Yeah, yeah. And so here, um, like he wrote this op-ed titled, What America Needs is a Liberalism That Builds. Uh, and to read, just if you, you'll humor me, a passage from it. 
uh, quote, a place to start is offered uh, in another uh, Niskanen paper, this one by Nicholas Bagley, a law professor at University of Michigan, in the procedure fetish. He argues that liberal governance has developed a puzzling preference for legitimating government action through processes rather than outcomes. He suggests provocatively that that's because American politics in general and the Democrat Party in particular are dominated by lawyers. Biden and Kamala Harris hold law degrees, as did Barack Obama and John Kerry and Bill and Hillary Clinton before them. And this filters down through the party. Lawyers, not managers, have assumed primary responsibility for shaping administrative law in the United States, Bagley writes. And if all you've got is a lawyer, everything looks like a procedural problem. Moving on, I've spent most of my adult life trawling think tank reports to better understand how to solve problems. When I go looking for ideas on how to build state capacity on the left, I don't find much. There's nothing like the depth of research, thought, and energy that goes into imagining health and climate and education policy. But those health, climate, and education plans depend, crucially, on a state capable of designing and executing policy effectively. This is true at the federal level, and it is even truer and harder at the state and local levels. Quote, uh, so with that being said, uh, coincidentally, much of what this New York, uh, you know, center Democrat left progressive uh, individual who's, who's swimming in that milieu is actually emulating much of the points that was said here. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Uh, this is really funny. I, I, I might have an essay coming out. We'll see. But the, what's really interesting is that, yeah, the rotten aristocracy is, is trained for proceduralism. That's exactly it. So I thought the most ironic example of this was Occupy Wall Street. Like a bunch of these people who like, let's call a spade a spade. They're kind of the like bohemian princes, right? <laughs> bohemian princelings or whatever, turning up with their long hair. And, you know, they're from a rich background and they have like their parents of PhDs and all that. But even they descended quickly into proceduralism and the entire Occupy Wall Street movement collapsed basically because it became so procedural proceduralistic. And so that's the flip side. The flip side of the ideological moralism that's imbibed into this rotten aristocracy by the boomers is hardcore proceduralism that goes absolutely nowhere. It's, it's really striking. And the other thing I'd say about that is it's not just about – you can be a bit of a Marxist here. It's not just about um, you know transmission of ideas and so on. There aren't as many managers to do these things because there aren't as many managers. The manufacturing sector is gone. It's out of fashion, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't pay as well as going into finance, corporate law, or something like this. So the, the manufacturing uh, 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 sector used to produce a sort of an aristocracy in the U.S., and it's just simply not there anymore. So that, there's a materialistic component to that, an economic component to it. But uh, that, that's a really interesting passage. I, I totally agree with it. I will say uh, it's kind of ironic coming from a writer who couldn't strike me as being more proceduralistic but anyway that's uh, besides the point yeah great so uh swamp ghost sir you've been waiting for a little while hey thank you for taking my question so much big um theme i kind of wanted like that's been in the last few questions is talking about like i guess demographics and boomers i think you both follow luke Grauman, and he's made this one point like 1956 1957 was like the like high point of like the baby boom in the United States. Like, and if you do the math, pretty much all of them are now turning 67 so they can like retire. So I think that kind of puts in like a structural like basis for inflation. Cause I think, what is it? Like 17 trillion is what they estimate their total savings and stuff are. 
So like tying that in as far as like with de-dollarization kind of it in a way happening, not necessarily like replacing it as like the reserve currency, but as far as like treasuries and stuff, it just doesn't seem like it's going to give like a real return. Uh, how do you see that like interplaying with like the political situation here? And I know you guys are not a big fan of like interacting with like U.S. domestic politics, but like as far as like the current like debt 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 selling like uh, d- like debate and stuff, like how do you see that structural inflation playing out? Yeah, I think that's a good question for Philip. Thanks for that because yeah, the baby boomers are now starting to retire in earnest. Um, you know, they've got trillions of dollars in savings. A great deal of which will be tied up in U.S. Treasuries. As the baby boomers retire, one would have imagined that those treasuries will start to be sold down uh, at exactly the same moment that the U.S. has run a huge structural fiscal deficit. I mean, Trump was running, what, like 5 6% at the peak of the cycle. As far as I remember, it might have been a bit less than that, but that's still pretty big as a, as a kind of peak of the cycle level. Um, how do you see that um, interplaying with U.S. politics and the U.S. financial position on a global level? Philip Pilkington. Yeah, I think it's it's a really good question. I think it's kind of the one of the core questions of like the future in a sense. Like multipolarity is a big question. Demographic change is a big question. Uh, inflationary tendencies in the economy is a big question. But I'd say so. A couple of things. First of all, I I did a whole essay on this. If anyone's really interested, called "Generation Against Generation and First Things," which kind of laid out. are basically correct that if you issue currency, you're probably going to have a sovereign debt crisis. A sovereign domestic have an inflation crisis, and you can have a currency crisis, which are the concerns and the, and the things that people should be worried about. But the financial aspect itself is Japanese central bank or the pension funds that are effectively controlled by the government. So you can sustain us financially, domestically financially. Now, whether it has an impact on the dollar, different question. But the really interesting question about um, demographic change, I think, is um, is workforce growth uh, or the flip side of that, the old age dependency ratio, how many retirees there are relative to the number of workers. And as that old age dependency ratio goes up, as there's more old mouths to feed for every young person working, that's where the inflation comes from. And the inflation comes very simply due to the fact that there's labor scarcity. There's not enough people to man the machines to produce enough goods for all the old people. And that, and the, and the wages climb because there's labor shortage. And that's how inflation gets embedded into the system. How this applies specifically in the West, 
Europe will experience it before America, but not much before. And America's only staving it off. I think we talked about this in the Peter Zahan episode. America's only sta- staving it off by what I would consider highly destabilizing levels of immigration, which are, I think, going to cause a political crisis there in the coming years. As the aging population kicks in, um, it, look, well, first of all, when will it kick in? It won't kick in. The baby boomers are the last generation to get away with it. They produced just, they're almost the perfect generation. They were produced in, as their name suggests, a baby boom. And then they reproduced just enough to have the entire system work for them until they go to the, to the, you know, to the next stage or whatever, until they're buried, right? It's our generation that are going to experience the aging quite badly. The, the Gen Xers, Maybe there's some Gen Xers on here, sorry. Um, but the Gen Xers will just about get away with it. They'll get some of the initial rumblings, but it'll be our generation. And the way that it'll manifest is the will of labor shortages. And there'll be a lot of old people to take care of. And as I said, if you're interested in the, in the overall dynamics of what that looks like and what the political implications of that are, have a look at my essay in First Things, Generation Against Generation. But it, to me, it seems like it's going to, engage, it's going to involve an, an enormous generation, intergenerational conflict over resources that could actually get quite scary. Um, and I, I mean, I don't think I say it in the, uh, in the essay directly, but if it gets quite bad, I'm not fully convinced that democracy would continue to function. Because think of it in very simple terms. Old people vote in greater number than young people. If old people become a bigger share of the population, they're going to start voting for stuff against the young people. But the fact of the matter is the young people don't have to put up with it. So at a certain point, I think democracy will break down, for example, there. But that, that, that'll be over these broader questions about resources. How much resources should be pumped into the retirees? How much of the economy should be ge- geared toward caring for retirees these are all huge questions so i think really the most, the most immediate problem in the west that needs to be solved is the demographic one because if we get to the point where we're looking at these types of conflicts these intergenerational conflicts within society it'll take up all energy the economy won't function properly it'll be geared toward a retirement home a giant retirement home economy which is what japan is becoming which is what South Korea is soon going to become. And there's no going back from that. There's absolutely none. So I I personally think that this is probably the best fight to pick at the moment. I think it could be viable from the current kind of culture war discourse. Um, And I think if, if if we could solve or at least ameliorate the demographic problem, um, some of the worst things that might be coming down the pike may be avoided. Yeah, I actually recommend everybody to look up that essay. It's quite an old one, I believe, like a few years old, Philip. Um, but it's uh, on if you if you type Philip Pilkington at first things, you'll soon find his um, his essay on uh, demographic issues and some of the problems. And there are some quite <clears throat> scary, well, not scary, but uh, I would say kind of unsettling uh, kind of views in that. And uh, and certainly, I looked at. You know, some of the recent uh, rise of um, 
euthanasia in Canada, for example, it made me uh, it, it made me re- it made me remember uh, that essay. Um, does that answer your question, Swamp Ghost? Have you got anything else, uh, or does anybody else want yeah. to contribute? Yeah, uh, that that definitely answered my question. Uh, the last thing I wanted to add, if that's okay, uh, Philip, earlier you made a point that like kind of comparing like the the current political structure in the United States, or I guess you could say like the elite, more to like the late Soviet Union. A really good point on that. that I think not a lot of people talk about in 1990 the the deficit as percent of GDP in the Soviet Union was like I think 10 percent. Uh, most recent estimates off the United States is like nine percent. And then it kind of, and the Soviet Union ballooned up the next year as far as like just the structural deficit. Uh, do you see like so you're you know you're saying the point of aging can lead to like a political crisis, and then say we have that inflation crisis on top of it. How do you see that playing out? Like you kind of does that kind of add more to your point of like you worry about like democracy dying, or is that you kind of think that could be maybe solved in a way, or like what are your thoughts on that? I guess. No, I think it's like really, really bad. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not like saying that the world ends because democracy dies. I mean, like you can have a functioning society that's not a democracy, but I don't think it would move in a good direction. I think all the, if you, if you put that much pressure on society where people are fighting each other over, fighting each other over everything, right? Including like over a generational resource war. Like you don't want to, that's not going to go anywhere positive. I mean, Andrew alluded to the, to the euthanasia and I, I mentioned that in the thing I said, you know, there are no, there are no solutions. If, if there's two retirees to every one worker, the worker has to produce three loaves of bread, one for himself and two for the retirees, if you see what I mean. And you can extend that to automobiles and you can extend that to housing, right? To everything in the economy. And at a certain point, that just drives the workers' living standards right down. And there's no solution to it. It's a physical constraint. It's not something you can solve by budgeting better or by engaging in better monetary policy or all these silly tricks that we've been doing over the past past 50 years or whatever. So that's the issue, that when, you, when it gets down to brass tacks and there's just physically too many old people relative to young people, the only quote-unquote solution to that is euthanasia. Right. And it's already becoming fashionable in certain circles in Canada, for example. So, I mean, that's that's kind of a, a now would it get to that? Yeah, I could totally see it getting to that. I, I really could. But I mean, even below that, can you imagine how much how little energy to do anything else a society that was concerned with an issue like that would have? And I just really underline that it would completely change it wouldn't just be changes in political life. It would change people's personal lives. It would change the way that they view family, that they view their parents even. It's nightmarish, actually. So I think, I, I, I would say, again, I'm kind of plugging my own, um, you know, shtick here or whatever, but I really think that this is, this is the most obvious potential victory that could be had to try and solve the aging problem through some sort of a pronatal estate policy. I think that would catch the political winds on the on the new right, and maybe even among the left, even among kind of like social democrats who actually care about people and not stupid ideology. I think it might be attractive to them too. Sweden, Sweden used to be a highly pronatalist state under the Myrtles in the nineteen sixties. Their their policies were wrong; they were 
communistic. <laughs> they were kind of like the state controls the family. The state looks after the family. They're wrong. They didn't work. But the, the instinct was there. So the, the social democrats used to understand that families were important. Even the Stalinists understood this. So I think it could be kind of maybe a consensus issue. But yeah, the, if we continue going in the demographic direction we're currently going, we are going to see it. We're going to be the first generation. If you're similar age to me, I'm 35, 36 next month. Um, we are going to see it. We're going to see the first effects of this, and our children will be in deep trouble. That's that's my feeling. Can I yeah, add just something to this? Yeah, please do. Well, you know, 60% roughly of the uh, current federal budget is quote-unquote mandatory spending, which is basically like U.S. welfare payments. So Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. And every year as the... U.S. national debt grows larger and the deficit seems to get bigger. You have all of these boomer budget hawks staging this like, oh, we need to balance the budget. And in the end, it's like, yeah, we're going to, you know, uh, cut down on wage increases for park rangers. And this this is the first step to sort of solving the issue where everyone kind of knows that touching liabilities or sorry entitlements that's basically like you know waking up and launching a nuclear missile at china like we don't know exactly what the response will be what's going to happen but everyone has really good sort of um reasons to think that the response will be really really bad and the thing about this is like if you look at history where you have the sort of internal Internal uh, uh, um, upheavals, you know, like yellow turban revolutions or uprisings or whatever, um, like the flower war in France and so on, like this really sort of pre-civil war economic rioting, like you tend to have a combination of material deprivation, which in turn fuels this sort of very conspiratorial thinking. So like the French peasants, for example, before the French Revolution, when you had several years of bad harvests, were convinced that the nobles of France had basically come together to create this organization called the Famine Pact. And the point of the Famine Pact was just, you know, to starve, uh, you know, ordinary Frenchmen. I don't know what plan, like the next step was, maybe replace them with Burgundians or whatever, like the Swiss something like that. But but everyone was convinced that, you know, all of these rich people in France, like they have this incredibly wide-ranging conspiracy whose point is to make bread unaffordable. And this is exactly what we have today. Like all of this World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, uh, like, you know, everyone is convinced that like at the end, at the bottom of all of these systemic issues, there's like a, a group of very evil people with weird dress choices and so on. And that's always a really bad sign. And also entitlements in the U.S. are set up to basically um, create the perfect storm when they're cut. Because if you think about how they work, like every time you pay taxes, you um, you you can see like this big deduction for like uh, where they say we're taking this money from you in order to save it for you so that when you grow old you're going to be taken care of and people see like five ten percent of their like income disappearing 
And the state never really tells you, even though like it's it's not exactly a secret, but it's not uh, something the state is very interested in sort of underlining, which is that, no, when you pay that 5 or 10% of your salary, it's not going into some lockbox or whatever. It's disappearing the moment it's being received to pay for other people. And so when you grow old, none of that money you paid in is actually going to be there. It's all reliant on there being other people paying like in their sort of prime working years. And if that doesn't happen, you get nothing. Because again, the money you pay is not actually being saved for you. And again, this is a system set up to make everyone fly off the handle the moment they get told there's nothing coming for you because their sort of common sense reaction is, well, I paid all this money. You just stole it from me. Like, this is because you're evil. Like, if you weren't evil and, you know, greedy and so on, you would have you would have just taken the money I sent you and, you know, not put it on fire or whatever. So, like, this is a perfect setup for, like, really, really, really violent sort of internal discord. Yeah, 100%. And I'd add to that that inflation is the same. In a deflationary environment where people are laid off, like maybe the left will blame the capitalist or something like that. But the average person's just kind of like, well, they lost their job. That's a fact of nature. When the economy's bad, you lose your job. In an inflation, which is what the economy tilts toward in an aging society, people think they're being robbed. You know, they're talking about greedflation now in the UK, which is absurd. It's not about that at all. But it's about someone out there is taking your money. Someone out there is grabbing you. I mean, you have the Lenin quote on, you know, how to destroy a capitalist economy to base the currency classic, right? But it, it, but beyond that, even mild inflation, even like 10, well, not mild, but even double-digit inflation, 10%, the stuff we're seeing now breeds exactly that sort of conspiratorial thinking. I, I totally agree with you. And, and this is, in fact, what happens to kind of politics in countries that are, you know, kind of shambolic. It's in the Middle East. There's a lot of conspiratorial thinking in politics and so on. I totally agree, though. I think that, that it, when the economic problems start to mount, um, especially due to an aging society with the inflation and, as you say, the quasi-pyramid scheme of social security and like programs, yeah, people will revert to that, to that mode of thinking. I, th I think you're totally right. Uh, can I just add a kind of longer term view on this? It, uh, Philip, you might kind of contradict me here, but my understanding is that between the end of the Second World War and the early 1970s, uh, GDP, you know, if you look at a line of, say, US GDP, uh, and I'm sure it's the same for the UK and a lot of Western Europe as well, if you look at the lines of GDP and productivity growth, it's fairly clear that they kind of move up in, in in lockstep. You know, GDP uh, growth in the economy is driven by improved productivity. And then if you take a line of um, productivity with, uh, with kind of median worker compensation, okay, they go up in lockstep as well. So like what's happening between the end of the Second World War and the early 1970s, you have these kind of like uh, 25, 30 years. It's basically the economy is growing because of increased productivity. You know, everybody's working harder, smarter, like, the, the, you know, they're producing more per unit labor 
input, basically. And that's then shared fairly evenly around kind of everybody because compensation grows at a similar rate. But then in the early 70s, you know, something happened. I think there's even a website called like, what the fuck happened in 1972? And it's like a whole bunch of charts, like, what, like, look at this. And, but what happened is productivity continued going up at a kind of similar rate. Like the line is, is fairly kind of straight line. It, it continues going up at its previous rate, but median compensation just flat lines essentially from the early 1970s. And then at, at the beginning of the 80s with kind of Reagan and Thatcher and their kind of economic revolutions, they start allowing the, 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 the private sector, both consumers and businesses, to take on more debt. There's much more consumer debt. There's much more mortgage debt uh, within the system now than there used to be before the 1980s as a, as a percentage of GDP. Uh, not not in overall terms, but as a percentage in GDP. And what we've essentially done is as economies, we've kind of like drawn down on our national savings, essentially, and taken on debt to subsidize improvements in the standard of living that are no longer coming from improved productivity that's shared evenly among the workers. Okay. Now that all ended in 2008, like everything everything kind of collapsed under its own weight and kind of a lot of debt was kind of liquidated or wound down or, or there was like a drag anchor on the economy, essentially. And now productivity is flatlined. Uh, compensation has been fairly flat, you know, for that period of time. And you're starting now to get like a, a, a rise in popularism. Like people saying like, look, this is an iniquitous country or an iniquitous society. We deserve a, a, a bigger slice of the pie. Now we have inflation coming into the system, which, as Philip says, makes people feel like they're being robbed. And if you then, on top of all that, where you've got a kind of a stagnant economic growth, high levels of debt, you've got this feeling that there's a, you know, like a certain sliver a certain strata of society at the top has benefited mightily from all this kind of productivity growth which until 2008 was was going on its previous line but has since kind of flatlined to a certain degree even as compensation has um you, you know been flat as a percentage of uh you know as a as a growth uh, level since you know certainly the early 80s and and, and definitely since 2008 if you throw on top of that, you know, the fact that we're going to have to see significant increases in productivity just to stay at the same level, because now it's going to be impossible. You know, even if we wanted to, it's going to be impossible for workers to have all of their improvements in productivity shared among themselves in an equal way. I mean, that hasn't been happening since the early 70s, but it couldn't happen now because you've got this large retired population. It's going to make things even worse. As, as Philip said, it, it's easy to imagine popularism, which is already coming to the fore, and it, it's already kind of breaking through in spasms within the electorate. You know, you, you know, you have in Italy certainly the rise of the populace. In Spain and Greece, okay, like societies that have been hit really hard over the last kind of ten, twenty years. You, you had a spasm in the United States with Donald Trump. You had a spasm in Britain with the Brexit vote. And since then, the establishment who believe in the current way of doing things, the current foreign policy, the current social policy, the current economic policy, they've kind of reasserted their control. The same in 
you know, countries throughout Europe as well. But if that's then supercharged with a kind of generational conflict and it's supercharged with a conflict with high levels of migration, okay, where people at the lower end feel that they're being outcompeted or, or, or their wages are being suppressed in an inflationary environment by outsiders who are coming in and competing with them, then I think it could be, you know, there could be serious trouble indeed. Um, Peter Ryan has his hand up. Uh, would you like to contribute to that, sir? Yeah, I would just uh, thought it'd be interesting to make the point that um, there's probably more runway to the exacerbation of boomer dynamics than maybe we give credit. Like there will always be the uh, eventual taking care of nonproductive old people phase. But uh, if, if we're thinking about another case study, like let's say South Korea, which a few months ago, I kind of looked into their fertility crisis and the uh, consequences around that. And so South Korea has an average age of about uh, 43.7. And the U.S. by comparison is like at 38.4. Um, and South Korea has a little bit different of a setup that sort of exacerbates um, the situation over there. But uh, so what's happening is so much of uh, economic pains felt by uh, particularly young males in South Korea, uh, which is contributing to uh, their fertility being one of the lowest in, uh, in the world um, is that old people work for so long. Um, and that's partly due because they have uh, a very, uh, you could say, libertarian sort of social security safety net over there. And so what you end up seeing is that there are older people in South Korea working longer that are boxing out young males because uh, you know, they have more experience, they have more skills, they'll work for less, they'll take worse conditions um, and all that stuff. And they're really not looking to like advance. They're looking to just like get a sinecure to, you know, uh, phase off into the sunset. So um, I think there's still a lot of room for that to start to happen in the U.S. and, and the rest of the West, uh, where I, I don't know if we've really seen that type of effect just yet, but if a lot of the conservative parties in the West get their way, they're going to get you know rid of Social Security, raise the retirement age, and they're just going to force boomers to keep working and crowd out um, you know young adults. Um, I just want to make uh, that, that's a good point. I think we're already seeing that dynamic. I'll just make one point, and Andrew, I think we should wrap it up because our poor producer is probably uh, uh, thinking about <laughs> time. He's very. Uh, He's very temporally oriented, and I think we're about half an hour over. But I, I just make one really quick point on on what you talked about about the very famous nineteen seventies graph of the wages and the productivity separating, which of course, as you said, means a redistribution. There's logically a redistribution going on there. Um, that's multi-causal. There's a lot of different causes to that. But one that I'd just like to float here that's never discussed and which ties directly into the demographic and migration problems that we're currently facing is that in the early 1970s, a huge percentage of the population were inducted into the workforce that weren't previously in the workforce. Women went into the workforce and no one wants to talk about that. That could be a very strong driving force to get wages relatively down to productivity. 
because a huge percentage of the workforce that wasn't previously unlocked was unlocked. And my reading of it is that then this isn't the only cause, but then in the, in the early 1990s, mid 1990s, maybe late 1990s, that is then exacerbated again by turning on these giant migration flows. But of course, the entering of women into the workforce is the exact same moment that the birth rate falls. Obvious, obvious reasons why that would be. I know all this stuff is really controversial to talk about, but I see a lot of kind of socialist types, social democrat types talking about various kind of causes of that decline in wages relative to productivity. And they never talk about the most obvious one, which is the unlocking of this enormous pool of the labor force that then drives down logically the birth rate that then results in the next wave of workers driving down wages, which is the huge migration flows that we saw in the 1990s in response to the decline in the birth rate. And I just think it's something really interesting. It's a really interesting angle. It's not the only explanation of that phenomenon, but it's at least one of them. Well, I think, as uh, Philip says, uh, before our producer starts going spare, that um, we've done a two and a half hour uh, podcast here and before uh, Femkeda starts attacking Philip for his uh, views on women in the workplace uh, I think we should uh, draw this to a close um, thank you everybody for listening once again really fantastic brilliant uh, contributions and questions uh, very much appreciate them uh, it's always really great to hear people it's uh, it, it's kind of restores my faith in humanity to hear people engaged and interested and actually know what they talk about and answer ask good questions so thank you very much for that um thank you producer gavin for uh recording this kind of uh, freeform gonzo podcast uh thanks to philip for joining and uh please people um uh listen to multipolarity you can do so on YouTube, uh, Multipolarity Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Multipolar Pod. And you can listen to us on your uh, podcast client, uh, your uh, podcast application. So um, uh, listen out for us. I think this is going to be uh, uploaded directly uh, onto YouTube at the rest. We shall see. But thank you very much again. Have a good evening. And uh, until next time, I, I think we've got a very special uh spaces lined up for the next one so do look out for that it's, uh, it's actually very exciting so um do look out for it and uh, i'll speak to you soon uh, farewell good night bye everybody